Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 22 of Teeth and Titanium, kicking off our third season, Oscar. How are you doing? Good. You know what? It's about to be summer. It's our third season. Everything's looking up. Yeah, weather's great here. I can't complain. Really do love summer. Much preferred over the winter. I I know you're a newfound skier, but you still must prefer summer over winter. I wouldn't say newfound skier. Attempt at skiing (laughs) is a better example. So yes, I definitely prefer summer. Some people prefer winter. Actually, I'm not sure there's people that prefer winter, but there's some people that love winter just as much as they love summer. Which ones? The ones that go to Florida in the winter? Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, the snowbirds, they love winter. You know, you get to go to Florida, stay in our timeshare. I don't want to meet those people. Like, I'm not friends (laughs) with them already, for sure. (laughs) I know, because I was going to put us in the category of, we obviously like summer better than winter. We enjoy having the seasons. I don't Personally, I wouldn't want like summer 100% of the time all year. No, I'd want summer, fall, and then snow on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and that's it. And that's it? Okay, I'm a little bit, I, I would like spring, summer, fall, winter, but winter being like, two months long instead of like five months okay, long that we fine, have in Canada. Fine, I'll take that. And what is spring? What are you going to do with spring? You want it to rain? What's the point of spring? Spring is like summer, but not as hot. Yeah, just give me a lighter summer. Then. I just don't want the rain spring. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. No, I can't disagree there. Big things coming up. You know, we talk about this every episode, but it's, it's amazing to, to finally say it next month. Like our next episode will be our Iceland episode. Yeah, we'll be there in Iceland. Yeah, so really looking forward to that. It's uh, gonna a lot be spring of people. Yes, yes, it's gonna be spring. <laughs> you saw, did you see the email about the conference? It's they said bring a sleep mask because sunrise is at four a.m. and sunset is at eleven p.m. I can sleep with the sun in my eyes. What sleep? You're mask? so lucky. <laughs> I, uh, you're so lucky. Yeah. you can sleep with the sun in your eyes. I'll sleep you can sleep on the plane. <laughs> no, you can sleep on the plane. Oh, so we're on the same flight going to Iceland, yeah. I will be sleeping before the plane taxis off the runway, for sure. So we so we found out that we're on the same flight going to Iceland, and the first thing I told you was, I'm going to be up all night with insomnia because I can't sleep on planes, and you're going to be passed out the whole time. You're going to, like, tap me on the shoulder, I'm going to be snoring, for sure. <laughs> I'm going to draw on your face. Yeah. I'm going to draw on your face with the Sharpie. <laughs> 100%. But yeah, definitely looking forward to, to next month in the episode. And we have had a lot of people telling us, you know, they're, they're coming or they signed up, and and uh, I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. The, yeah. the attendance looks pretty solid from what they, they emailed us like a, a list of attendees and it looks pretty, pretty good. Oh, that's exciting for sure. The other thing I wanted to mention before we get into our current events was we talked about leading up to this major milestone of when are we going to hit 10,000 mm-hmm. listeners? And we thought it would be last episode. And the truth of the matter is it was last episode. I forgot to mention it. So that was my fault. But something happened where I don't know if people thought there was a raffle for whoever was the 10,000th listener, but it just like skyrocketed out of nowhere. So we're actually behind the times, oh, Oscar. We're at- There's not a raffle? Because I listened to it like 30 times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, there is no, no prize raffle. money. No <laughs> raffle, no prize money, but we're actually at 11,500 listeners or, nice. or plays or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So we definitely passed our milestone. It's really, 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 really nice. What should be our next target? I don't think it should be 20, maybe 25. Yeah, like I, I, exactly. What's 20? 25 is nice. Like, 25, yeah. Yeah, you're 100,000. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this guy's thinking dollar bills, hundred thousand. Yeah, guys, that's like, what yeah. You like, how many listeners do you have? I have a quarter hundred thousand listeners. <laughs> I have a quarter hundred thousand <laughs> listeners. Yeah, we're at a tenth of a hundred thousand yeah, listeners exactly. right now. Yeah, but but we're growing. <laughs> it's slowly, but we're growing. <laughs> I like the way you said that. Anyways, I uh, just wanted to give an update that we really appreciate our listeners, and, and we love the fact that people are staying loyal and listening every month. We're going to get into some loyal listeners later on in the episode, but definitely a huge shout out to everyone that listens. And with that, let's jump into some current events. One thing I wanted to bring up in our current events is I love to bring up, not issues, but situations that I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. You know, as a new practitioner, new private practice owner. And one of the things I chatted with you about was taking call. So we know that when you take call as a resident, you have a pager. Some of the hospitals now, they actually, instead of paging your pager, like a physical beeper, they can just text you or call you. I know that we have that at Miguel. I personally, I know you thought it was weird. I, I prefer the pager. I like the, the you beeping. You also like winter. No, I'm just getting, I'm like, I'm learning new things that are crazy here. No, I hate winter. Oh yeah, you, like, I told spring. you, I hate you like spring. I forgot. <laughs> so I prefer the pager. And I think a lot of people do because, you know, it beeps loud. It's got independent connections. So even if your cell phone sometimes isn't working or dies, like the page is always on, wakes me up. So some people like the page, some people hate it. I know you hate it. A lot of people don't like it. They prefer just people calling their phone directly, things like that. And I think in a residency environment, it's easy because you, you have that pager option and you're going to carry it around all the time off service. And it's just a normal thing of residency. Once you graduate, it becomes a little more tricky because you kind of have a choice. You can maintain a pager, but that means now you're keeping a pager with you at all times because you not only have hospital call, you have office call. Nobody's doing that. And this is the thing is you you would think no one's doing it, but I know several people that carry a pager, a physical pager, what? they prefer it and they use that for the office call. I'm not, I'm not joking with you. I, I do know some people that do that. And I, I'm telling you, I don't think it's a bad thing except for the fact that you have to physically have this that, pager with yeah. you and you have to remember to take it with you all the time. So for I'm me- I'm actually shocked. Yeah, so I actually prefer a pager. I just don't want to be stuck the rest of my life having to carry it around and forgetting to bring For it. Sure, wear it on and, your belt uh, buckle. That'll look cool. Wear it on your belt buckle, things <laughs> like that. And if it was just if it was just our hospital call, like I'm on call, you know, one in five at one hospital and one in seven other hospital. Yeah, I could carry the pager on for the week. I'm on call. I'm on call. But the problem is office call is 24 seven. If you're a solo owner like me, obviously for you in a group practice, we're in time was a little bit different. So I had reached out to you saying, how does your you're you're part of a big group? How do you guys handle office call. And for those that don't know, office call means your private practice patients that are calling with emergencies, dry socket, bleeding, wisdom, teeth, pain, stuff like that. So Not for you in a big group, let's be clear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> emergencies and air quotes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mostly TLC stuff. How do, how do you handle it? And how's your office handle as a group practice? So ours, like I would say, it's, it's pretty well set up at, at Crescent. And so what it is, we rotate. So the seven of us take call, we're one in seven. And what it is, is the week that you're on call, obviously from eight to five when the office is open, our calls get directed to the nursing like call center that we have. So you don't really do any of that. After five till the next morning, we have an after hours call service. So patient calls the, the phone number to the office and it gets directed to like an answering system, an answering machine. A person takes down their information and then they will text us and we'll email us at the same time saying a little brief description, the patient, who the surgeon was, who the on-call surgeon is, why the patient is calling, and then whether this can wait till the morning or not. And then you respond back either through the email or through the text saying that you're going to like you've acknowledged the receiving the email and then you choose to call the patient back. Yeah. Okay, great. So you mentioned there's a text message and email. If you're not responding to your text as you're asleep or you're not checking your email, obviously we're asleep. Is there a backup system? Because they'll like yeah. call you, will they wake you up? Like, so, how does that work? No, so that's true. And so they'll send you two email texts. So like they'll send you an email and a text at the same time and they'll do it one more time. 
And if on the second one, you don't respond after about 20 minutes, so send you one, don't respond 20 minutes to send you a backup, still don't respond, then they will call you. If you don't answer the call, then they will pick the surgeon that did the procedure. Because usually the patient says, oh, the procedure was done by Dr. So-and-so. And so that'll be the next person they call. Oh, okay. So there, there is like a nice backup system in place. So no one really falls through the cracks. No. And like, realistically, there's seven of us, like they'll get a hold of somebody. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's true. You'll be apologizing a lot if you haven't answered and they got to the seven other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. If you're on call and you missed it, they're going to be mad at you, but yeah, yeah things happen. Oh, a hundred percent. And like sometimes like, even if you're on call and you're driving in a dead zone, right? Yeah, you just happened yeah, exactly. to be for those, for those 25 minutes. That pager would have beeped though. Pager would have beeped in that dead zone. You still couldn't call back though. <laughs> You're in a dead true. zone. <laughs> so I just got a beeping pager and I can't do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> Your question is, what the hell are you doing in a dead zone when you're on call? Get out of the cottage country, Oscar. Yeah, yeah, Come man, back I'm to civilization. Co- I'm not a cottage person. You know that. I'm staying in the city. <laughs> We're both not cottage people. Yeah. It's, it's one thing we actually agree on. Yeah. All right. So, so that's a great system. And I think a lot of group practices use something like that. I've talked to other people that are in group practice and they have a very similar system. As I mentioned, a little more challenging when you're in a solo practice or maybe just like a small group practice. Sometimes you can't afford a, a call service or it's expensive or it's not worth the logistics. So you're stuck with two options. And one option is to get a pager or some kind of paging alternative, or you have to leave a cell phone number on your voicemail. And I know people that leave their own cell phone and they told me like it rarely gets abused. It's not a big deal. The issue with leaving your cell phone is not really from a privacy point of view, but a, you know, from a patient point of view, once they have your cell phone, is it going to become public? And some patients may abuse it. And then once they abuse it, what can you really do? You can't, you can't not answer you can't the phone. You can't, phone. Block, like, you can't you change your phone. You can't block. So I think it's, it's, it's tough. I, I feel like that solution doesn't appeal to me because if you do have even one or two patients that become abusing it, I mean, it's it already becomes, too many. It's already too many. And it's, it's an impossible situation to solve. So I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. I don't want to carry a pager. I don't want to get my cell phone. So nowadays with smartphone technology, I said, there has to be a solution. I can't mm-hmm. be the first person that thought of this. Yeah. So I just Googled it and I went on the app store and I actually found this app. It's called OnPage. So it's O-N-P-A-G-E. And Basically, it's exactly what you are hoping it's going to be. So basically, it takes the pager and puts it on your phone and app. Uh-huh. So it's a, you pay for it. It's a monthly subscription. You can pay based on what you want. So for example, for you in a group practice, you would pay probably for like a fancier tier because it would set up scheduling. So Oscar's this week and yeah. if your backup is this and it would automatically do everything. Wow. And it, would, and it pages you. And the reason I like it is I have an iPhone. And when I sleep, I put do not disturb on. So it treats pages as a critical message, meaning it'll go through sleep mode, do not disturb mode. It'll beep no matter what. It'll keep beeping until you wake up. Like it'll ramp up in intensity. It's kind of thought of everything. Yeah. But what's really nice is it feels like having a pager because it beeps like a pager. You answer the page and basically when the patient calls, they're calling a generic number. They don't have your cell phone number and they leave their callback number. You can enable it where they can leave a voicemail too, if you prefer like, you know, for them to actually leave a message with who they are, what they're calling for, I like that. Callback, callback number, stuff like that. Yeah. Right now, I just I just put the callback number because it's not like in residency where, you know, you're trying to figure who it is and review things. You're gonna, in prior practice, you pretty much have to call back everyone that pages, no matter what it's for, even if it's just to reassure them. So I just put a callback number for now. I just started it, it's working well so far. I'll, I'll see how it goes. I think it's but a the great funny, idea. Yeah, but the funny thing is I reached out to the person that created it. You know, this is great. I was looking for a thing that, because they give you a free trial first. I tried it and I said, yeah, this is really working. I was looking for a substitute pager and, and we were just chatting and I said, yeah, I'm an oral surgeon, stuff like that. So I told him I had a podcast and he said, listen, if, if anyone else is interested, tell them to reach out. 
And he actually gave a promo code. This That's, is our first promo code. There we go. So if you want to use on page, I guess you have to put the promo code in teeth. It's <laughs> just teeth. If you put in teeth, they'll give you like easier. a... Yeah, if you put in teeth, you get like 5% off your subscription just by putting in the word tooth or teeth. And you teeth. know what? And that was just you reaching out. That's awesome. And I think that's a yeah. great service because it really sounds like the best of both worlds for someone like you who, who mm -hmm. isn't in a group practice. I would say anyone that doesn't have a call service but doesn't and doesn't want to give out their cell phone and you don't want to carry on a physical pager or if you're carrying around a pager and you wish you didn't have to carry it on you all the time. So you mean everybody? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Should be everyone. Just look look up the app and uh, give it a shot. It's free to try. And I, I really like it because I like how it was just a generic number, but it's a pager. So it'll wake me up all the time. That's, so Yeah, that's great. Yeah, just something I wanted to tell all our listeners about just so they could take advantage. And it'd be funny to see if anyone else drops the pager. You know, you know there's like cutting the cord for like getting rid of cable? I threw mine. <laughs> you, the, yeah, the minute you know, I was no, done residency, gone. What cord? Gone. <laughs> <laughs> Here's this gone. Next up, I wanted to talk about the, the CMS being in Iceland. As you know, there's always abstract presentations by residents. I presented in the past. You you presented by proxy because yep. your article was selected to present, but then you weren't able to make it. So Mo presented for yeah. you. Yeah. Shout um, out to Mo. So, so your article was kind of presented by proxy. But I'm happy to report that two of my abstracts were selected for this upcoming meeting. So even if we bomb our live podcast, at least I have a chance to make up for it in my abstract presentations, whereas you have nothing. You have, you have, if we bomb the podcast, I'm going to boo you like crazy when you're doing your abstract. Trust me, you. <laughs> without getting into detail, you, you might not be necessary to start the booing. <laughs> I'm just going to heckle you. Like if we bombed it, I'm done. Like I'm like, I'm not, you're coming down with me. There's no chance. <laughs> <laughs> Going down with the ship? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm but really looking forward though. to it. That's good. It's always exciting because it gives you a chance. And for everyone else who's presenting their abstract congratulations, it gives you a chance to present your research that you've been working hard on. Yeah. Gives you a chance to get some feedback, see if there's any tweaks you can make, and just kind of update people on what you're working on. And, and sometimes I always love watching abstracts because then I think, uh, can I apply this to my practice? Or, you know, is this can this change anything? I really, really enjoy it. Plus, it's usually young researchers, so you kind of want to promote residents or young surgeons that are still doing research because you know that's obviously gonna be the topic of today's episode but it's really important to continue and, and you know what like like you said people work hard on these research projects it's a time where they can show it off a little bit and, and they can get that recognition for doing that mm -hmm. yeah exactly so looking forward to that and uh, hope hope to see everyone at the abstract presentations next up oscar we had chatted about implant cases yeah and how implants are one of the most stressful parts of private practice especially when you compare it to extractions because extractions they're usually simpler and you're done um you take you're it done like there's no follow-up like most it's either out or it's not right? yeah complication rate is low and when they do have complications usually they're relatively easy to treat yeah whereas implant surgery you know it can be more challenging there can be long-term follow-up long-term complications patients are paying a lot of money for an elective procedure yeah like at least removing a tooth, sometimes they're in pain or in inflammation. You're you're curing them of a disease. Where yeah, here you've really taken just... a tooth out. They already didn't like you, and now you're doing another surgery where they're not gonna like you again. Yeah, and, and it's elective you. surgery, <laughs> and they're paying you, and it's elective surgery. Yeah. And in the world of implants, you know, you start to ramp up. So you're t you're talking about single implants, you know, tons of bone. Then you're looking at single implants in more aesthetic areas. You're looking at multiple implants. You're looking at bone grafting, sinus lift, ridge augmentation, things like that. Things are getting more and more complex, and then. I feel like you hit this, you know, steep learning curve where you can you I think most people get to that level of bone grafting, sinus lift, multiple implants, stuff like that. But then there's a jump you can take, and that jump is to edentulous cases. Now, when it comes to edentulous cases, you know, the simplest would be maybe two mandibular implants for an overdenture, you know, in a bar or locators. But even that requires some alveoplasty, some yeah. knowledge of the anatomy. 
parallel Knowing implants. Where your denture is going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Some yeah. Pr- prosthetic considerations. And then I think there's another jump when you go from removable to fixed, especially when you're talking about all on four and then zygomatic cases. So my first question for you would be residency wise and now in your private practice lifestyle, any experience with full edentulous cases? So all on four or zygomatic implants at all? So all on four, yes, both in residency. Quite a bit at Sunnybrook, we were doing a lot of edentulous cases. Is um, that with Blanis? Yeah, with Blanis. Nick Blanis? Yeah, and it was okay. I wouldn't say quite a bit, but we, we definitely had experience in that. And then with the group practice, they've been amazing. Like they do a ton of all on four cases, like Eddie, Riddy, Pete, Chris, Samir, like they're all doing them. They're um, all doing them. Okay, because oh, I know yeah. Eddie, Eddie Rainish, for those that don't know, I know he's like kind of known for implants, oh, but he's, does he do the most out of everyone? Probably would do the, he's doing the most, but I would say they're all doing a good number. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever you want to learn, there's, there's, or observe, there's more than enough cases. I would say there's at least two K, two all four cases happening a month, at least at minimum, some sort of, oh, nice. yeah, yeah. So that, that I've had a lot of experience in that. And are, bring, are they bringing in Prosto to do like an immediate conversion and immediate loading and all that kind of stuff? So we have an in-house technician to do our conversions. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's well, as- I was going to say, you know, you're busy if you have an in-house tech. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's as of the last year and a half. Shout out to Frankie. She's really, really good. And she's awesome. And shout wow. out to Don Somerville, Prasadonis, who kind of got that organized or helped organize that for us. Makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, huge, especially for the patient. Oh, for the patient. hundred percent. And like, not even that she does. She like, she helps us do our guides for like, for just single cases or like more complex multiple cases that you're not all important. She prints guides for us. She does a bunch of things. She scans, gets us immediate, te- immediate attempts. She's great. So that makes a huge difference. So definitely experience in that. And then I would say in terms of zygomas, saw a couple of residency, not very, very much, especially right at the end. That's when we started seeing them. And then since I've been in private practice, Pete at our practice, so Pete Julius, he probably does, I would say the most in Ontario, if I had to be honest with you. Wow. Um, but still, even him, it's still not a super common procedure, right? Like I'm seeing maybe, I don't know, one every couple of months, maybe. And then if I, if there's a chance, if I know there's a case happening and I'm able to make my schedule available, I will go into his to like to watch him do it. And he, obviously these are being done with him under GA. So like I'll try to block yeah. off some time to go watch him. I think you've touched on a lot of important things when it comes to resources for a big group practice. I think if you are a big group practice, one of the pros of that approach for people that like that approach is leveraging resources. So oh. when you're a bigger practice, in-house technician, something you could do. You can obviously never do that in a solo practice. Mm-hmm. GA days, we've talked about in the past, but you guys have GA days. So use that to your advantage. Do yeah. these more major surgeries and it just makes the surgery way easier. Yeah. And then you mentioned the ability to come and shadow and, and, and come watch. So you're leveraging off of their expertise and their cases. Every time they have a case, you're watching them or helping them do the case. You're increasing your caseload without even having the patient base. So it, it's, it's, and, and these, are, these are the pros. And they're awesome. They're not like, and, and I'm talking about all the five partners. None of them are like, oh, no, no, don't come into this case. Like whatever case you want to come in, they're more than happy to let you come in. And, and if you're there and, and like you want to learn, like I do, I like to learn, like I'm assisting the whole case. I tell the system to get out of the way and, I, and I'm still watching what they're doing. It's been great. I can't complain at all. Yeah. So that, that's really nice. I would say for myself in residency, we do a lot of implants, but I did not have a lot of experience in all on four. And then I only saw one zygomatic case. So I would say overall, my edentulous experience from a fixed point of view, immediate conversion point of view was very low. And one of the zygomatic cases actually just went to one of my staff's private practice, Michelle Lakeem, because he was doing one in private practice with the process, with immediate conversion, because I, I, that's how desperate I was just to yeah, even like, just at least see, see it. At least I can see it before I graduate. Yeah. I was really fortunate in my fellowship that, you know, fellowship brings all these added benefits that you never really 
think expected. of when you when you expected. Yeah. So I've talked a lot about how it's orthopedic, it's TMJ, but then just covering facial trauma call as the staff and having a resident, it taught me a whole world of facial trauma mm-hmm. and how to walk a resident through a case and get more comfortable just with trauma. Comfortable. Yeah, being the staff, the lead person. Mm-hmm. And one of the other nice things is <laughs> the CCFS group in Charlotte just happens to have like one of the biggest all on four slash zygomatic implant people and Rick Capitan and like Amazing. one of the top strawman speaker series prosthodontist and hunter dawson and they're both just happened to be there and they work so every single friday was at least one all on four immediate conversion case that's amazing so you had a sprinkling of zygomatic cases throughout the year but yeah. the majority was all in four and they're just doing all in four non-stop and a lot of them were immediate so remove the teeth alveoplasty yeah. all in four immediate conversion just like crazy crazy stuff so because that's i saw lucky. it every single week i got a lot more exposure there now mm-hmm. granted at the beginning i'm watching then they start letting you do it. And by the end of the year, they were letting me pretty much do every mandibular case. Mm-hmm. Maxilla, they would do it, but help me walk through. Because as you know, maxillary bone is a lot softer bone. It's a lot harder. You don't really have as much wiggle room. Yeah. Especially mandibly. if you want to convert that day. Like, well, that's what yeah. it was. And, yeah. and, and yeah. you know, when it, when it gets to that level, it's like, we convert. Like, yeah. you know, we always convert. It, it, kind like, of thing. It's you gonna, we're going to find bone and it's going to get stable and we're going to convert this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like they get offended if they can't convert. <laughs> so I, luckily I had a great experience there. But I did want to broaden my horizons and see what else I can learn from a continuing education point of view. So one thing that came up was I noticed that there was a zygomatic course and it was in Canada. So it was by Nash Daniel and Abby Nader was the process, Sammy Abby Nader. And it was in Moncton, New Brunswick at East Coast Oral Surgery. And basically I found out about this course through my Nobel rep because the course was sponsored by Nobel. And they said, okay, if you're interested, you know, in all on four zygomatic, this course was really about zygomatic implants. And I went, to learn more about it, because I think you should go to a course and your first mission should be to learn more about the topic and figure out, is it for you? Yeah. Does it fit or does it work? Does for it you? fit your practice? Is it something you could do? Yeah. And first of all, I would say the course was really, really good. I know I've talked to some other people that were considering going, might go next year, things like that. I would highly recommend oh, it Nice. for a couple of reasons. One, it's very well done. Like it's a really nice course, very informal. Everyone there is specialist only. So it's all oral surgeons and there's one prosthodontist. It's nice because it's a Canadian surgeon, Canadian prosto, and and Canadian attendees. Yeah. So it's not like some big global it's a thing. Perspective. Where it's perspective. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's Canada. Pretty much all of Quebec was there. It, it seemed like I saw so many of the Quebec surgeons, but but people from all over Canada came, like literally from BC, Alberta, wow. Nova Scotia, Ontario, and uh, it was a really good course. But what it taught me is you need to be ready to to, to take the step. And what he said was you need to have placed five hundred regular implants and done 20 all-on-four media conversion cases before you even think about doing a zygomatic case. But so I like how they were responsible there. You know, sometimes you go to a course. Well, it's not really for us, but like these GPs go to a course and the person's mm-hmm. like, oh, you finished my course, you'll be able to take out any tooth, you'll be able to put any implant in. Yeah, like, here's a certificate. Some, yeah, exactly. This is someone being responsible be like, hey, you came to this course, but it doesn't mean you can just go in and do it now. Like you still mm-hmm. need the experience, you still need the repetition. So I think that, that that's a good model by him to tell you guys. Yeah, and they had a whole hour-long section on complications, and he brought in a guest speaker, Jean Fata, from Quebec City. This guy's presentation was wild. All it was was real-life cases that had been referred to him, what the person did wrong, how to fix it, and what he had to do. And when it goes wrong, it can go really, really wrong. That's the difference. So, like, I was speaking of courses this Friday. I was at a a course, an all-on four complication course. Oh, nice. Hosted by that was sponsored by Strawman. So the other big yeah, okay, yeah, okay. (laughs) And it was Hassan Moganan. And honestly, what an awesome course! Like, he's a very good speaker. Doesn't take himself too seriously. Ripped on himself all the time. 
But he was saying like, yeah, you have to be ready because when things go wrong, they really go wrong. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so That's it's not it just tough, that so. single implant complication where you're going to remove the implant, graft it and put another one in. Like stuff can really hit the fan. Speaking of pretty impressive, I do have to give him a shout out. He has the biggest flex I've ever seen ever anyone ever no one will beat what he said so we were uh, we're all talking there a bunch of us are f1 fans because you're an f1 fan so i'm going to use this with you this was of course was on friday on saturday he was driving lewis hamilton to an event he was lewis hamilton's driver like, well, like, like as a chauffeur take... or as a friend no 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 like not even as a chauffeur like he's got a lot of vintage cars and one of them is this old mercedes beautiful like with the gullwing doors what and so he drove lewis hamilton to the event on saturday Oh my like, God. That's you can't sick. beat that. You can't beat that. No, you can't beat that. Yeah. That's awesome. No, oh, impressive. I know Montreal GP was this weekend. We know some people that went that one of my friends went. I, I told you I couldn't go because it was my five year anniversary, but yeah. it seems like you guys didn't up going without me. I, it was, was it like leave no man behind that's or it. just like, couldn't you know, get tickets? We're like, we're like Navy SEAL. We're like, no, we weren't going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> when can't come, none of us are going. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even watch the race. I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm boycotting. Yeah. Anyways. So, Definitely recommend the course. Really, really enjoyed it. And I think that the message that both of us seem to be saying is, you know, proceed with caution. This yeah, well, if you're going to proceed, make sure you're ready. Yeah. Right. And and have some mentors and do it under GA and yeah. at first at least and do it supervised. Like I, I, proceed with caution definitely at first. Yeah. You know, Oscar, we, we constantly talk about how this podcast, does it have more power than we think? Are we just, you know, all in our heads? But I need to, someone needs to break down the timeline here, but Marco sends a voice note saying for anyone that's in Toronto in the summer, come or like, look, look me up so you can come on my boat. Yeah. And you're like, where's my invite? I said, where's my invite? I've never been on this boat. You said you've been on the boat. I told you no need to rub it in. (laughs) And then before you know it, I'm getting an email saying that to celebrate the end of surgical orthodontics. I'm invited to his boat with the with the orthodontist professors. How quickly uh, with, did you hit yes, respond? I instantly responded, yes, I'll be there. <laughs> Just tell me when, when and where. where. Where do I wear my life jacket to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it was it was Marco, it was Fritz Keenly, me, Ali Shojai, who was orthodontist, Serge Ortho, Bruno Venatelli, who was Serge Ortho, orthodontist, and then Sina, who was, uh, nice. who was a graduating a nice fellow. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was fun. So we got to go down to the docks, go on Marco's boat, you know, sail around uh, Lake Ontario. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Now, Fritz, Fritz is rolling his eyes because he knows this is going to come up here because I told him it was going to come up. But we've always said Fritz has this boat, has this yacht. And yeah. He keeps saying, I don't have a boat, I don't have a yacht. And, he, and he, he said once again on the boat, he said, Wendell, I do not have a boat. Stop telling your listeners I have a boat. I don't own a boat. Like, it's a lie. So I said, okay, listen, I believe you. Yeah. But then we're setting sail and Marco's doing all this fancy stuff. I've never been on like a boat, really. Yeah. I don't know what the hell to do, right? So he's telling me, hold this rope and just don't let go. Like I'm getting very simple, your, simple tasks. Your hands are going to get ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> and his, you know, his will, his his crewmate, his wingman, whatever you want to call it, is Fritz. And Fritz is running around the boat and, you know, loosening a, a line here and raising a sail here yeah, and, yeah. and steering. Like very, very comfortable on this boat. Like very yeah, familiar. Yeah, like too so, comfortable. It's like too comfortable. Like, how does Fritz know how to operate yeah. this boat so smoothly? So now nah, I'm starting to question again. I'm not so, so sure if he doesn't have that so, boat. Okay, so so you're just questioning. There wasn't, like, he didn't actually say, no, no, I was lying. I actually do have a boat. No, no, Fritz <laughs> is very adamant. He doesn't have <laughs> no, a boat. No, you hyped me up there. I was getting ready for be like, then we went on Fritz's boat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then Fritz's Titanic pulled around the corner. Yeah, yeah. Then the cruise ship, yeah. <laughs> no so i guess for the record fritz doesn't have a boat but he's very comfortable on a boat so maybe he's he sailed his whole mm-hmm. life i don't know we'd have to get into it sometime but 
But yeah, great time on Marco's boat. Appreciate the invite. And I'm not sure about the timeline. We'd have to break it down as to, you know, what followed what. But, but I, I think that may have been like you, you, you planting that seed and he picked up on it. I think so. I he think sensed it works. you were so, feeling left out. Yeah. So I think we just have to keep, keep planting seeds. Yeah. Fritz, um, we'd love to so go on to, your boat. <laughs> yeah, Fritz, <laughs> if you do own a boat, bring us on. Listen, we won't tell anyone. We'll stop yeah. making fun of you. And we, we won't tell a soul about your, about your luxury yacht. In, yeah. in, in Monaco. We were chatting about what we were doing today. And one thing we already talked about is how leveraging off of other people's cases. So the idea of if you go and assist or you go share a case with someone else, even if it wasn't your patient, you're actually gaining experience without having For to sure. actually have that patient population or have that experience. Mm -hmm. So I told you this is something I started doing right away when I graduated from my fellowship. I came back. I have zero, zero cases, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get rusty. I want to keep your hands going. And also, you know me, I love orthodontic surgery, mm -hmm. so I don't want to be out of it for too long. I love these cases. So you reach out, reach out to surgeons in your area because the beauty of it is people that don't work with residents, they're desperate for they need uh, assistance or they need assistance, they need help yeah. because you, it's it's a nightmare to do orthodontic oh. surgery by yourself or just with an assistant that doesn't really know what's going on. And it's way more fun to have another surgeon there just from a camaraderie mm -hmm. point of view. So I reached out to a lot of people in my area. I already told you how Joey Freelick and I had done some cases, Dana Moore and I had done some cases. And, you know, I'm slowly trying to build up my own patient population of mm -hmm. jaw surgery, but all those people will be ready in a year, two years, mm -hmm. they have to get braces and things like that. Yeah. So one thing I told residents is that, you know, you need to reach out to people, but there, there comes another side to that. The cost is you have to make sure you book off your prior practice day. So you are losing money, but yeah. you have to accept that. It's worth it for the experience. Especially if you're interested in it, it's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. And you have to be open. You have to go there open-minded, you know, learn from They're people's experiences. And it's their patient. They, it's their patient. Always remember it's their patient. So whatever they want to do, you have to do it yeah. that way. If they ask you if you want to volunteer certain tips and tricks, then the, sure. most people are open to that. Yeah. And I found people have been very open to that. But you always want to be respectful as it is their patient. They're going to have to deal with the post-op. They're dealing with the complications. You got to be nice. So today, actually, in the OR with Zane Manji, who also works in Brampton with mm -hmm. Joey. Mm -hmm. Super nice guy. Super and, nice guy. Well, before we say nice things about him, we were in the OR today and, and he brought up, oh, I, this is the way he worded it. He said, I've listened to your podcast from time to time. It's entertaining, great work. Okay. So that's nice. That that's nice. good. Yeah. He says, it must take a lot of time. It must be a lot of work to make. And I said, yeah, it is. I said, it's really fun. It's an excuse to catch up with Oscar at least once a month. And it, we, we love it. It's yeah, a great time. But it, is, but it is a ton of work. You know, hours of prep, hours of post-editing, and stuff like that. He said, oh, yeah, that's awesome. He said, well, hopefully I'll get a shout out. So I said, wait, I, I said, wait, I said, you mean, cause we're in the OR today and I had a, I, like, listen, I had a great time with them. We did a couple of fours. It was, it was great. I said, cause we had a good day today. And he's like, no, just cause I've listened before. I said, wait, but you, you said you've listened from time to time. Yeah. This guy, it, it, like how consistent, you, yeah, how consistent <laughs> is this? Cause like, did he listen the first episode and he's going to listen to this one? Cause he thinks he's going to get called out on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to know. I'm like, if you're if you're a loyal listener, you're listening every week and you're quoting, you know, what yeah. we said last episode, I'm like all in on yeah, it. Yeah, 100%. But if you're going to listen to one episode, dabble a little bit, yeah. then purposely be nice to me and then get a shout out. I told him, I said, listen, you'll probably get a shout out, but I can't guarantee but, what I'm going to you know say. What? But he did. He got one. He got a shout out. Yeah. So it worked. He manipulated me and yeah, it worked. Yeah. He played you like a fiddler. <laughs> he played me like a fiddle. No, no. But we, we had a great time. And, nice. and I, I, I wanted to bring it up as a way of. It's nice to have positive experience with other other surgeons. It's nice to learn from other people and ends up being a great day. Like, yeah, you're out of the office, oh, but who you cares? Clear like, your mind a little bit. It's a different clear experience. Clear your mind, have fun, different types of surgeries. And and we were joking today. I said, listen, this is the first case we've ever done together. Hopefully the first of many. And luckily both went well. And it was just, it was just a great feeling. He's like, I'll call you never. Perfect. 
<laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm done with it. Yeah, it's true. But never get the call back. I'll know. You know why? It's yeah. kind of like going on a date. You're like, he's listen, I, assist, I yeah, I assisted you, showed you what I do. Yeah. Are you going to invite me back? Are we going to do it? You know, he's like, he's like, it's not you, it's me. Just never come back, though. <laughs> That's awesome. Nah, but, but we we do we do love our listenership. And speaking of listenership, I have to mention to you. While I was at the Zygomatic course in Moncton, you know, I'm sitting there, we're doing the course at the break. This guy comes up to me and says, Wendell. I said, I said, yeah. He said, it's me. I'm your biggest fan. I said, oh, what's your name? He said, I'm Ahmed. Ahmed yeah. from Teeth and Titanium. <laughs> <laughs> remember, remember our hashtag be like Ahmed? Yeah. 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 No way. Ahmed. That's Ahmed. actually, so, that's pretty fun. I like that. It, it was. I love meeting people that have listened to the show and know us from there. Yeah. Like we talked about how when I went to Nashville, Kevin Robertson from mm-hmm. Alberta reached out and yeah. I met up and we hung out and things like that. And he pretty much came up to me, Ahmed Al Muzayin, and he said, "Yeah, it's me. I listened to your show. Really enjoyed it." So, so just to give you a recap, he's graduated Manitoba. He's passed his boards. He's working in Ontario, just south of Ottawa, and a practice there. So he listens, and it was just awesome meeting someone. And the funny part is, he said the same thing which everyone else says, which was. I feel like I already kind of know everything about you and what's going on with you. So yeah. there's nothing really for you to tell me. <laughs> but let me tell you a little bit more about myself. Because it's true. Like we like everyone who listens knows a, a ton about our lives realistically, right? Like we're pretty open about what's going on in our lives. But if we were to meet somebody else, like someone who listens, we have no idea about them. Exactly. Like it's yeah, we completely don't know one-sided them. those relationships. But it's kind of fun then because you get to you get to learn more about them and also see their experience and how the podcast yeah. affects them and things like that. But you're right. It's a complete imbalance. They know everything about us. And they, they could cater whatever they say, knowing they exactly our opinion right now. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> they know our opinions. They know our views on things. It's it's pretty funny. I actually worked with a resident once. And uh, we <laughs> from from the podcast, we had talked about mandible first or, or, or screw fixation for genoplasty, something on a previous podcast episode. And I asked him a question and he literally said, well, I know you want screw fixation. You're and I like, said, oh, that was easy. I was like, well done. Yeah, I guess you're a regular <laughs> You passed well this done. question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So shout out to Ahmed. Nice to meet him in, in person and, uh, and meet him at the course. I mean, how at the course? So that was really great. The last thing I have to discuss, Oscar, for current events is a, a big milestone. Mm-hmm. So I've talked a lot about on this show, I'm graduating and becoming an associate for Dan Amora, who pretty much everyone listening to this podcast probably knows. Yeah. And everyone um, has a good thing to say about him. I've never heard one bad thing about Dan Amora. We've never heard a single bad like, thing. And I, I can tell you, as as his associate, having bought the practice from him, and I told you about this previously, even us, him and I getting along well and being good friends, when you're doing like a transition and a purchase practice, it can get like, sour. It can get sour. The gloves are off. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, you got, he's got to look out for his family. I have to look out for my family. And even going through that process, nothing but wonderful things Classy to say guy. about him. Classy guy. Been amazing to work with. Been am- he's now my associate, obviously. I'm trying to cling on to him as long as I can. Yeah. but. All good things must come to an end. Officially, this month is actually Dan Amora's last month. Wow. He's retiring from the profession after 43 years. So, yeah, golf clap. That deserves a clap. That's that's a stand-up person. It's coming to an end that career. Wow. Yeah, so he, he's been a huge, huge mentor. Just been really great. He's, he's shaped the rest of my life. Like, yeah. it's crazy. You think about your mentors, your staff, and people that have changed your life forever. I've talked about a lot of you know, previous people that have changed my life and, you know, previous guests that we've but, have on that have changed my life. But you don't think it's a person that when you graduate, come back, you buy practice and like within a year can have that effect. But it sounds like he has. Like, that's amazing. Definitely. He shaped the way I run a business. He shaped the way I talk to staff, the way I hire staff, approach staff, yeah. talk to patients. Well, I, I would say when it comes to patient care, he, he hired Deal me and we got along well because 
because we were pretty similar. Yeah, dealing with referrals. He, he taught me how to do that. Dealing with complications, difficult patients, dealing with the finances of yeah. oral surgery, which is such a, a mess that we all have that to do That we don't with, learn at all. That we don't learn at all. So he's been literally, he's been amazing since day one. So I wanted to give him a huge shout. He's going to hate the fact that I gave him a shout out about it because he's so humble. Oh, he hates he the spotlight. He, if someone deserves a shout out, he deserves a shout out. He does. He's going to hate me for doing it. But listen, Dan, I had to. You know, I had to. And uh, for all the listeners, you don't need to reach out to us. You don't. I mean, you can send nice things to us if you want us to read them out or just yeah, want to let us know your experience sure. with Dan. But please feel free to reach out to him directly. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. He's he's going in a happy retirement, spending time with his family. He's got a uh, a grandkid. He's got his own kids. He loves to hang out with them. So he's given. Enough he's going to have a great time. He's given enough to the profession. You know what? Let him write off. And it's funny because when we first talked about it, he was saying how he'd love to do you know, I, oh, if only I could do a day here, a day there. Because he just loves the profession. Yeah. Like, he just loves it so much. And he's given so much to it. But he's at, nowadays, I find, he not, like, especially in the past few months, he's ready to go. He's like, nah, he's like, if I didn't have to work another day, he's like, I'm ready. I've yeah. done enough. I, yeah. I don't need to do any more of this. So yeah. it is It is pretty cool to see. You know, I'm at the beginning of my career. He's at the, at the end. And it's cool to see that perspective. That's awesome. So happy retirement, Dan. I wish you all the best. And I have nothing to say, but thank you so much for everything you've done for me. That's great. All right, Oscar, that concludes our current events. Let's jump into our guest interview. So for this episode, we wanted to talk and do a deep dive into a topic that's funny. It's fundamental to everything we always do in education and our residency programs, which is research. Yeah. All of us in residency usually did at least one research project. Mm -hmm. uh, some of us did masters, which involved research. Some people do research after graduating. Some people are involved with academia. And but they it, do research constantly. it moves our specialty forward, right? Like, it is really what Re it does. Really, really important to the specialty. And... For me, when it came to talking about research, it was a no-brainer. I wanted to bring on Dr. Simon Young. I'm going to let him go into his background and his history. But what I will say is that I've met him three or four times at conferences. He's one of the nicest guys, one of the most honest, upfront guys. He believes in education. He believes in research. He believes in mentorship. He really is like one of the Just truly nice, nicest guys. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we talked about Dan. I feel like Simon isn't cut from the cloth. Now, obviously, I don't know him as well, but... That's the vibe I get. And from people that know him, they seem to see similar things. Just a really super nice oh, guy. Great. So without further ado, to talk about research, let's bring on our guest, Dr. Simon Young. All right, everybody, welcome to our guest segment. So we are thrilled to be welcoming Dr. Simon Young. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for coming on. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with you or your background, can you give us a little bit of an introduction on where did you train? Where do you currently work? Could give us a little more information about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Toronto and I went to nice. the University of Toronto yeah, <laughs> downtown, did my undergrad there. So that was in 96. So I finished up a human bio BSc in 99 and I went to dental school at the University of Toronto starting oh, in 99. Also nice. Also nice. <laughs> <laughs> I sniffed some controversy already. Yeah. I finished in 2003 and then at that point I moved to the US to begin a combined oral surgery MD PhD program. And so this was at two different institutions. So the clinical part of that residency training was done at the University of Texas, Houston Health Science Center, very long name. That's where the oral surgery residency training and the medical school parts are. are. And the PhD was done at a separate institution called Rice University in their bioengineering department, which is across the street. So my PhD was done with my PI. His name was uh, Dr. Tony Mikos or Antonios Mikos. And then that was actually sequenced. You know, I was, I think I was the first person in the program 
to split up the institutions. So there was someone in our program named Dr. Zahid Lalani who did his PhD with his residency, but he did everything at UT. So it might've been a little bit less complex in terms of shuffling things around. And he was also not a foreigner like I was. So trying to juggle being Canadian at two different institutions down here, would took a little bit of juggling. So, you know, credit to Dr. Wong, our chairman for figuring that all out. But so we, the way we kind of designed it was that I started off in 2003 with a few months of internship year. So I think I did about six or seven months. Then I just pretty much launched into my PhD over at Rice. And it was a little complex because Rice did not want me doing any patient care, but I came to the country as a resident. So in that first year, I kind of audited classes and still did patient care. And in the second year, I completely did not touch it, like did not physically touch a patient and completely transferred over to Rice University as a PhD student. Did that till 2008. And then when I finished up my PhD, I came back to UT and started medical school. And as you can imagine, all these people are graduating ahead of me, right? So yeah. the people I had started <laughs> with in 2003, like some of them had already finished in 2007, right? So by the time I came back in 2008, you're like, we're interns together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. well, now you're a chief and I'm a PhD. <laughs> yeah, it was so weird. Now but, you're my attending. <laughs> you know, it was nice though, because, you know, I, I still went to all the morning rounds. So I guess I learned a lot by osmosis. And, and the thing is, no one, no one so-called pimped me because I was just like the research guy yeah. in t-shirt and shorts all the time in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but I went through like four or five years of oral surgery conferences. So, you know, we used to have conferences. It was like Tuesdays, Thursdays, some Fridays, and even every other Saturday. So I was wow. hearing That's like crazy. four or five hours of oral surgery yeah. every week for like five years. So by the end of those, by the time I was done my PhD, I, I'd absorbed enough like biosmosis to at least have a faint idea of what was going on. You're like a super first year that first year. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was weird because, you know, uh, so I went to med school, you know, and, and so at least down here in, in Houston, the way it works is you start off in your second year. Uh, so you kind of skip the first year of med school. You At least that's how it was. You go to your second year and then you finish third and fourth year. And so by the time I came back on service, and we, and we had to do like general surgery in, in between, right? So by the time I actually held on to a pair of forceps again to extract a tooth, it was probably like 2010-ish, 2011-ish. So seven years. <laughs> yeah, so I had held wow. a forceps in 2003, and then I held it again in 2011. And I was like, what is this thing? Like, <laughs> it's like It didn't feel like riding a bike exactly yeah. at the beginning. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like I could have gone through dental school twice almost during that time. Yeah, know? that's crazy. Um, but you know, I mean, it, you know, I think everyone was really great and accommodating. And you know, obviously they, did, they didn't throw me into like really complicated cases right away because it was just like almost like starting off from scratch again, you know, but it was, it was okay. And then, you know, I, I basically did that from 2011 to 2013, finished up residency in 2013. And near the end of residency, I was already sort of planning what the next steps were, you know, I mean, like everybody else, right? I mean, I think usually the year before you graduate, you're starting to think about jobs and what you want to do with your life, you know, the so-called, what do you want to do when you grow up? And so I was thinking to myself, I knew I wanted to stay in the academic sphere. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do clinical fellowship or research fellowship. And, you know, at the time, you know, the problem is, I, I think in oral surgery, there's not too many, you know, practicing oral surgeons who are actively doing research in labs. So I didn't have too many, like people to really talk to, right? So Steve Feinberg at the time, you know, is, is one of the greats who, who does that sort of stuff. Brian Schmidt's another person who's an oral surgeon who also has a lab, you know, and of course, Atira Agalu. There's there's a, a small cohort of people. So, you know, I tried to see how their careers were, were panning out. And I actually, you know, called up Brian Schmidt, just like cold called him. I emailed him, like, hey, can you speak to me? And we spoke and he was very nice. 
And, you know, I, I guess he just asked me that cliche question, which we all understand, but it's like, you know, what's your passion? And, uh, and I thought about it and I, and I said, I, I really love research. So he said, well, you know, if you do a clinical fellowship, you really won't have much time for research. So he goes, the way the, the environment is nowadays, you might want to just focus on one or the other. And then so I said, you know, I, I think the research track is really for me. So what I did was I applied for an NIH grant, which sort of allowed me to transition into a postdoc role for two years and then have funding as a young faculty. So I was fortunate to, you know, I applied for that award in 2011. And then I went up to Boston to work for someone named Dave Mooney at Harvard for two years. And that was, it was a very important shift for me because my PhD was in bone tissue engineering and biomaterials. And around 2012, 2013, immunotherapy was really sort of becoming popularized and everyone started knowing about it. And so I switched into doing biomaterials for cancer immunotherapy in my postdoc research. So when I finished that up, when I finished up in Boston in 2015, I was looking for jobs, you know, part of my sort of lab or my research program was going to be both bone tissue engineering and cancer immunotherapy. So I did my due diligence, you know, interviewed at multiple programs. And at the end of the day, it actually made the most sense for me to go back down to Houston. So I started, so I started back in Houston, 2015. And my chairman was really nice because, you know, I didn't want to not be operating during those two years of my research fellowship. So I had really flexible mentors. I mean, both, both Dave Mooney, my, my research, my postdoc mentor and Wong, sort of my clinical mentor, they both figured out a way for me to, to come down to Houston like once a month and operate with the residents while still doing my postdoc in Boston. That's so typically awesome. what I would wow. do. It was great. Yeah. So I, I would pretty much stick in the lab for three weeks of the month and the fourth week of each month, I would just fly down to Houston every month and operate with the residents. Cause you know, no one knew me in Boston, you know, it's, it's not yeah. like I can just call up Dr. Caven and like, Hey, you don't know me. So can I get some OR time at MGH? And be like, you know, I mean, they were very nice, but obviously I couldn't ask for that kind of thing. So, you know, I was, I was very fortunate to have, you know, I was able to keep up my skills, go to the OR, work with the residents, but still complete my, my research postdoc. And my research boss was okay with that too. He said, listen, you know, I understand, this is your route. So, you know, if you want to take that last week of every month to do operations, like go ahead and do that. that. That's a great setup that people were able to organize that for you. Like, yeah. Awesome. I mean, so much of my life looking back, I, I, these talks are always fun because, you know, in life, you're always, you're just, you're always just kind of going, 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 and you're not, you're never really thinking too much about the past. You know, you're just always just looking ahead. But to be honest with you, these conversations are always really nice because it actually forces you to just stop for a second, mm -hmm. look back on what you did and, yeah. and just, take a breather and appreciate all the people that really contributed to like help you make it to where, where you, are. you are today. Yeah. Yeah. And so you were saying you went back to Texas 2015. So mm -hmm. what is your current clinical practice, like weekly schedule look like? Yeah, this is, it was great. So, you know, that also was a, was a matter of, of negotiation. Right. And so I think, you know, one challenge for people like me is, I mean, let, let's say you want to do predominantly research with your life, right? And especially if you are on an NIH grant, such as the one that I was on, where NIH gives you $750,000 for the first three years of your career to do research. I was going to say, money, by the way, for, for those people that don't know, an NIH grant is a big deal. I know you're being humble about it, but it's a like, <laughs> it is a big, big, big deal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you so much to them. I mean, I have to say thank you to them because they really, you know, what what is really good about at the NIH and NIDCR specifically. So, you know, at, at the NIH, there are many institutes and the ones that, you know, as dental folks tend to gravitate toward, it's called the NIDCR, which is the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research. 
And so, you know, when I was speaking to them before, I mean, I started speaking to them almost two years before residency for career advice. And they have they have grants that are available for everyone. I mean, it doesn't really matter what stage of your career you're at, whether you're, you know, the dental school stage or doing your PhD or residency or whatever, there's a grant to help you try to mold a research career at, at each point. And so that one that I had won, it, it basically protected me. So it said, I, not only was I going to have funding for tiers of a postdoc at Harvard, but it also gave me money. So it gave me $750,000 to come with me to whatever institute huh. I chose as yeah, my wow. faculty job. And the nice thing is it, it said that I could not take a job unless the chair of that department guaranteed me 75% research time. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is nice because, you know, most times, you know, I mean, the oral surgery world is not too used to hire like research focused people that are also surgeons, right? So most of the time, like a department will hire a pure scientist and they yeah. get, you know, the salary of a scientist or they hire a surgeon who gets paid a surgeon salary, but they're in, they're operating all the time. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's very, you know, it's a little bit awkward when you sit down with, you know, the dean level person or the chair at each interview and they're like, okay, you know, this is who you are. So what do you want? And you're like, well, you know, the, the, I kind of want both. <laughs> yeah, I kind of want right. both. You know, and that's what, and, that, and I said, well, don't believe it on me because this is what the award says. Right? Like, I, and I have to do I this. I have to do yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of nice because it protected me. And so when Dr. Wong put this thing, whole thing together, he said to me, he said, listen, you know, we have. Well, you know, at the time we have 14 full-time people now, but even back then when I was in 2015, there was still like 11, there's been many clinical faculty, you know, where we are. And so he said, listen, you know, we're not, we're not hiring you to have your warm body in an operating room. He goes, if you want to operate, that's cool. Like be, you know, you're, you're more than welcome to do that and keep your skills up. But he goes, we're, we're not hiring you because we need a warm body operating like five days a week. So he goes, you have that flexibility. So he goes, you know, do what you want. So the way we organize it was, it's a great mix in my mind for what I like to do. So I operate with the residents on Tuesdays at our county hospital. And so at the hospital that I am at, there is block time on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And also they have an outpatient center on Fridays. Mm -hmm. So I'm like the so-called Tuesday guy. Mm -hmm. So on Tuesdays, we basically have a post-op clinic that can be run pretty much on autopilot by our junior level residents. And then I'll go upstairs with the chief resident and then mm -hmm. whatever cases come in. So you know, it's a mix of trauma, dental alveolar, you know, benign path. I don't do malignancy, obviously. You know, and then every once in a blue moon, there'll be like some sort of TMJ related, you know, procedure to do. So it's nice. And, and then I'm actually also allowed, all employees at, at my institution are allowed to do private practice at least half a day. So I actually work for my one of my best friends in Houston, who I was an intern with in 2003. He owns five practices, so I work in no, I his practices gonna, uh, on Fridays. Say, well, he's probably worked for a while. So you you started, <laughs> you were co interns. Yes. Now you finally graduated. He owns five practices. Yeah, it's crazy. Right? And we started in 2003 together. This guy Alex Fisher, one of my best friends down here. So he and I met as externs at uh, he was at USC at you know University of Southern California, and I was doing an externship. So he was the extern in 2002. I came the month after and we, we kind of hit it off. And then we happened to just match to the same place as interns in Houston. So he finished, he did a six year program. He finished up in 2009. And then, you know, by the time I finished up in 2015, he'd, he'd already been out for six years. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I go to that practice on Fridays and do down all the olders. So that it's, it's really nice. Like, and, and you're with your one of your buddies. Like, that's great. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. So and the rest of the time, it's, it's, it's me time. It's, it's my lab. So it's, it's great. So, you know, I have a research lab. I have, you know, a research scientist, research associate. I have, you know, two grad students and it's great. I mean, it's exactly what I've always wanted. So, that's you know, nice to well, hear. No complaints. This is one of the, this is actually one of the 
biggest reasons we wanted to have you on. So obviously, congrats. I mean, it sounds like you have an amazing setup, but you're unique in the sense that, as you said, we meet so many surgeons who don't care about research. We meet surgeons that like research and dabble in it. Then we meet academics that do a lot of research and a little bit of surgery, not really that much surgery. And then we meet like pure researchers, pure scientists. It's very rare to meet someone that does a ton of research, but also operates, also works with residents. Like it's a very unique thing that we don't see that often. So my big question to you is for the people that don't fall into your category, for residents listening, for surgeons listening, why is oral surgery research important? Why does it matter? Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say from my bias, maybe it's not just me, but I, I truly think that research is what forces everyone to be innovative and answer questions, right? So research is just another way of saying, you know, how are you, you know, answering important questions and moving your field forward in a rigorous way, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, if you are in a busy implant practice and you put in like 1500 implants, you know, a year, let's say, or whatever, right? And if you never think about why you're doing what you're doing or ways to make it better or answering questions about how you can make your outcomes better, then you may be just stuck in the same mode from year after year after year. And if you're doing the same thing 10 years later and you haven't improved yourself or looked critically at your own stuff, then you're not moving forward. And that's not helping the profession, right? Research doesn't have to be formalized. Of course, you know, in the academic setting, it's, it's, it is nice to do that because obviously we want to publish findings and let other people know about it. But at its core, you know, it's always about being intellectually, you know, curious, asking questions and sort of having that sort of humbleness that we clearly, you know, you know, I, I think at the beginning of residency, you'll know, like, you don't even know what you don't know, right? And then when you finish residency, you have a pretty good idea of what you don't know, but then you can start asking interesting questions, right? Like new techniques or, you know, or maybe a technique you've used for a while, but no one ever really looked at, does this technique work better than another technique? And so if you can answer those questions in a rigorous way and let people know about it, then that sort of plays into the whole sort of evidence-based, because I think our profession in general any profession in healthcare, it, it has to move away from people getting up on stage at conferences and saying, this is what I do. Why? Well, just because this <laughs> yeah. is because. because yeah, Oscar's I'm, famous yeah. in my hand. Right. Because yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm world famous and because I say so, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. You know, versus I use this example a lot because now that I'm in, you know, I do cancer research. If you go to these AACR meetings, these American Association of Cancer Research meetings, I mean, you don't get oncologists going up on stage and saying, well, you know, we use this combo just because, yeah, because, yeah. you know, I, I like, like it. it. Why? <laughs> right. I mean, it's always like, this is our trial data, right? This is what we did, multiple phases. These are the outcomes. And, you know, after, you know, many years of preclinical research, then phase one, two, and three trials, we find they're comfortable enough, like with our guidelines to say, blah. And it would be great for, you know, our profession to move in that direction. And I think, you know, we're moving there, but, you know, I, I would say other you know, in, in dentistry, you know, I actually started off sort of doing perio research and, that, and kudos to periodontics folks who the entire profession has been very, very, I feel strong in the science side of things. I mean, when I was a dental student, I was working for someone named Howard Tannenbaum, who yeah. he was the head of perio Howie. now. And now yeah. Howie. <laughs> <laughs> Nicest guy. Very and, but, nice. You know, yeah. And he was such an incredible guy. But what really, really, you know, impressed me was that, you know, like the lab, not just his lab, but many labs at UT, you know, and Perry were doing great research, right? And my, at least my bias is that if you own like the science, you start owning the procedures too, 
right? So, I mean, that, so in a, you know, in a very long-winded way, that's sort of why research is important because if we don't do research, we don't ask questions and don't answer those in a rigorous way, we're gonna get left behind. Along the same lines, I got another question is, are all types of research important to you? So like lab versus clinical, let's say. Yeah, so one thing I've also sort of become humbled as time goes on, you start to realize, you know, what you're good at, what you're not good at, or, you know, just you only have a certain amount of bandwidth to do things. And so at least what I started off with in my career was sticking to basic science research just because that was my formal training, right? So my formal training is in a lab, you know, doing, you know, basically what they call wet lab research, you know, like bench stuff, preclinical animal studies and all that. And so we focused on that for a while. But you know, as time has gone on, I've become more comfortable starting to get into clinical research. So an example of that, just, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly chatty guy that, that likes to network with people. So, you know, when I was at Boston, I, you know, I, I started speaking to some folks who were running a, a startup out of MIT, and they were interested in doing a clinical trial for a topical method of delivering high amounts of cisplatin to oral tumors as sort of neoadjuvant therapy. And so, you know, I, I had I hadn't done clinical research before, like true, like clinical trial stuff, you know, but I said, you know, I, if, you know, it's small, it's a small study. I know that sort of the people who are running this sort of the technology, it's not like Novartis giving me like $500 million to run like 500 patients, right? It's like, <laughs> hey, let's just try this out. So, you know, baby steps, I learned how to do that. And, and the other nice thing is that, you know, I'm surrounded by 13 sort of full-time clinical people, right? And they always have interesting sort of clinical questions. So as years have gone by, you know, we'll sit around and say, hey, you, you know, you're doing, you, you use product, you know, I obviously want your product names, but you use product XYZ, you know, would, would you be interested in looking at the outcomes of it? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Because I have like 50 of these cases lined up. Cool. Why don't we do that? So, you know, over time, you know, I've started to, you know, delve a little bit into the clinical research realm as well, because that's obviously super important for your for your day to day work. The stuff I do in the lab may not see the light of day in patients for like a decade or more. Right. But the clinical wow. research is stuff that you could potentially see, you know, important findings from much sooner than that. So definitely both are important. And I think people need to understand what their interests and strengths are. And if they want to go outside those realms, you know, collaborating with people do a lot of the other stuff is usually helpful. Yeah, definitely. I think both are important and both offer something unique to the profession. And having done, I'd say, a small amount of kind of wet lab research, as you would say, and then a lot of clinical research, I find my strength is more in clinical research and I find mm -hmm. myself gravitating more. But I value the wet lab research because it helps me understand other studies and it makes me honestly makes me appreciate the hard work that other people have to do when they're doing that lab research. So when it comes to residents or even, you know, new practitioners, young surgeons that are considering embarking on a research project, what advice do you have for them? And maybe even more specifically, what about receiving funding or working on grant applications? Because you talked about an NIH grant. That's, I mean, that's top level, top tier stuff. Yeah. But let's talk about basic stuff. You know, you're a local organization, your national association, $5,000 here, $3,000 here, you know, mm -hmm. local grants. What advice would you have for residents, new practitioners, as far as embarking on research and getting funding? Yeah, so I would say, so number one, I guess as the de facto director of research for our department, I guess I've started to, mandate's the wrong word, but I guess it's kind of mandating. But I, I, you know, I'm fortunate that I actually get to sort of design the research curriculum for all of our incoming residents. 
And so, so not only is it a CODA requirement now that all residents here in the U.S. have, like, they, it's not optional anymore. They have to have scholarly activity. Yeah. So, so I, I tell, I mean, I actually just sat down with our new, our new crop of interns just four days ago. But, you know, I, I told them, I said, listen, you know, everyone needs to have scholarly activity. We all want you to have, you know, publications, you know, and, but I said, the most important thing is that you have to pick something that you're interested in that's realistic. And, you know, obviously, like all things in life, every organization has like this bell curve where you have some people who like, there are some residents in our program who literally have, I think, 30 manuscripts. And there's some people who have one and that's okay. You know, I mean, because I've been through this program because I trained here, I mean, I understand, you know, we, we are not, the goal of our program is to graduate competent oral maxillofacial surgeons, not, you know, people who are publishing 30, you know, 30. Now, if you want to publish 30 manuscripts, awesome. That's like way beyond what's required. You know, from my perspective, the most important thing is picking a research project that's interesting, something that's publishable. And when you graduate, you'll understand how to evaluate, you know, literature and have an appreciation for research. You know, and so what what I do is because I'm responsible for compiling our department, our entire department's academic output every year, I know, I kind of know every single attending's interests and what they've been publishing on. And so when residents come to me at the beginning of the year and say, hey, you know, I have an interest in this or that, I say, oh, yeah, great. You have an interest in this? Go see Dr. So-and-so. He does this stuff. Or, oh, you have an interest in that? Go see. And, you know, and I'll That's also... That's great for residents, though, like that it's you helpful. have that like algorithm for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it also depends on what, what part the project is at. Right. So I tell people, listen, like if you're a non-categorical intern and, you're, and you might only be around for a year, potentially before you let's say you match somewhere else, then I'll put them on a project that maybe is close to being done, but just needs like another like three or four months of work. And they can nice, contribute nice, yeah. right? versus someone who's got just they're at the idea stage and it might take four years to finally play out. That is like not a non-cat intern project. And that's being fair know? to them, too. Like, so they actually are mm -hmm. accomplishing something in the time they're there. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it, it helps everyone, obviously. I mean, for them, they're learning about research, but for us as faculty, obviously it helps with our academic output because, you know, as academics, we all have to be publishing things all the time, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and what about grant application? Do you help them with that as well or uh, getting funding? How does that work? So I, you know, I have not had, as far as I can recall, I have not had a single resident come up to me yet and say that they wanted to apply to a grant. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not opposed to that. I just haven't had anyone apply for a grant with me yet. You know, there are, and you got to remember also, I guess, you know, in oral surgery, there tends to be, you know, kind of like two main foundations here in the U.S. So one is the Osseo Science Foundation and one is the OMS Foundation. And the nice thing is, you know, these foundations have different level of grants for different levels of, of folks. So if you're like a scientist, you know, you can go for like, you know, the, the grant that's like $100,000. But if you're a resident, you can go for smaller ones. And what I actually find encouraging are they even have things called like research, like observerships. So for residents who are interested in research and they want to see, and let's say they're not at an institution that does a lot, they can apply for these grants or, or sort of observership opportunities and it's paid. And they get to go to a different place and observe, you know, the science wow. going on. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So that's, so that's uh, what I hope is that, you know, as that starts to catch on, you start having a pipeline. Because, you know, I think one big challenge for us in academia is that, you know, Dr. Wang and I say this all the time. I would love to have another, you know, oral surgery PhD person come through. But the problem is 
it's a tough sell, you know, because people are either it's betting already for six years to say yeah. to someone, well, you know, you, you might actually be around for 10 years. <laughs> people are like, well, uh. <laughs> it can be a tough sell. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're always looking. I, yeah. I hope, I really hope we find someone soon. We just, we just haven't had anyone, you know, go through that since I graduated. So we really like to find someone, you know, the next person. And so I think you've actually touched on this a little bit, but two questions. What makes a good research topic and what are some pitfalls to avoid when you're performing research, like when you get, when you get a new resident? Yeah, well, I think the most important thing for a research topic, it has to be sort of relevant to our, you know, if, if you're doing oral surgery research and, and you're doing something that doesn't really seem to make any sense, you know, I always think of significance. So, you know, when, when you're reviewing an NI grant, one sort of box that they ask you to check is a so-called significance box. And what that box means is that if the goals of the research project are actually met, like let's say all your experiments work out, whatever, how is that going to change the profession or the field, right? So if you're doing something that's incredibly scientifically rigorous, but no one cares, that's maybe not the best. I feel like all research surgery. projects should have this, this criteria because it's, <laughs> I see too much research where I'm like, what was the point of this? It's right. not going to change anything. Yeah, validity is, is super important. So, I, you know, if I had to say one of the most important things about any research project, aside from like, you know, feasibility, those things are things you can worry about later. But the idea at its core still has to be something relevant and actually worthwhile, right? Then once you come up with the idea and the idea makes sense, then you can work on the logistics. Like, can you actually... Do you have the money for that? Is it something you can actually achieve, you know, in the time span you have and the funding and, and whatnot, right? I mean, there's, let's be honest. I mean, there's lots of things even in, in the basic science world that I would love to have or be able to do, but they just cost too much money, right? And so, so I mean, you know, the funny part is when you start off in, in basic science and you don't have that much money, sometimes you feel like you go to these, you go to these conferences. And the way I tell people when, when you first start off, it's like, you come to this conference and you let's say it's, it's like a, it's a movie convention, right? And you're, you're feeling so proud of yourself because you have your little camcorder. This is like dating me. I guess now people use phones, but you have like a little camcorder and your little Lego minifigures and you're acting out a scene in Star Wars. You're like, oh, check this out. This is so cool. And then like after you get off the stage, you know, George Lucas goes up like, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah check this out. Like, you know, Star Wars 3, you know, $100 million budget. And you're just like, dude, I can't compete. Really. You're like, what am I doing here? <laughs> right, exactly. So part of that is just, you know, being smart about the resources you have and realizing sort of the niche that you're in, right? So for me as a researcher, you know, without like bajillions of dollars at my disposal, right? You have to be smart about the projects that you pick and sort of form a little niche area. So you can at least, you know, form your identity, form like, you know, your core research program and then grow it. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So a couple quick rapid fire questions for you, because we do like to have our guests contribute to some of the segments we have on the podcast. And mm -hmm. one of the segments is called Resident Reminder. And the purpose of that is we try and take a topic and explain to a junior resident, senior resident staff, things like that. Obviously, the theme of this episode is OMFS research. So there's certain things that are fundamental to research articles that everyone needs to know. And you have to learn when you're a new resident how to, how to appraise, how to read things. Yeah, so absolutely. The first kind of rapid fire question just for you to explain quickly would be, yep. can you explain what sensitivity and specificity are and why they matter? Yeah, super important. So the way... I think this is actually very relevant now. Everyone should know this stuff just because of COVID testing, right? I mean, I, I feel people learned about sensitivity and, and specificity after COVID testing was, you know, emerged and everyone became familiar with it. But you know, I think the mnemonic that I always learned was like spin and snout, right? So by, by definition, 
a test that is sensitive basically says it's accuracy, right? So for all the, you know, for people who have a disease, you know, like positive for a disease, what are the chances that that test will be, you know, will be positive for it, right? So if you have COVID or, you know, for all the COVID positive people in this country and then you tested them with that, you know, whatever test you choose, the PCR test, what percentage of those people are gonna show positive on that test, right? That's its sensitivity, right? The opposite is like the specificity, right? So for people who don't have COVID, now, how accurate is that test to say that is a true negative, right? And so that that is a characteristic of the test, and it is completely has nothing to do with like the prevalence of the disease, right? While you know, I think what other people think more about sometimes is like positive predictive value or negative predictive value, right? So when you take that COVID test. And you see the positive or the negative value, you know, or, or result, what is the chance that, that truly is truly positive or truly negative? And the problem with that is that it's like based on prevalence, right? So depending on how prevalent a disease is, that will change something's positive or negative predictive value, you know? So, you know, I guess that's sort of like the, the, the short answer, quick answer to your question. Yeah. No, that, 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 that's, that's a good way of explaining it. And, and then to follow up with that, so what is a p-value and why do we set it at, you know, p should be less than 0 0.05 to be statistically significant? Like, why is this always the way it is? And why is everyone <laughs> just trying to get that p-value below 0 0.05? Why yeah. does that matter so much? Yeah, I guess it's convention, right? But in, it, strictly speaking, you know, your p-value, so for me as a scientist, you always have a scientific question, right? And so... You always have, or you know, what we like to call the hypothesis, right? So your hypothesis is that if you're doing X, Y, Z, is that going to have? Is it truly going to have an effect that is, you know, significant or not? So let's just let's take something like I don't know, patient-specific plating and orthognathic surgery, right? So that's like really in vogue right now, right? So if your research question is does the use of patient specific, you know, pre pre-made, you know, titanium plating orthognathic surgery, does it, you know, is it more accurate, you know, or even better, like, is it within like whatever 0.2 millimeters or so of your final results, right? Let's say that's your hypothesis. So you have to say the null hypothesis is that it is not, right? You always start with the null hypothesis. So the null hypothesis is that no, patient specific, you know, patient specific plating is not more accurate than, you know, regular, regular than that surgery with regular plating. So then you run your study, right? So you run a great study, you randomize it. Let's say you have a thousand people, 500 get conventional surgery, 500 get this patient specific, you know, you know, implants. And then when you finish, you know, you're going to have accuracy values, right? So you're going to have, and they will be either they're either one is really accurate or not. Now where P value kind of like comes into play is that you have to understand that conceptually speaking, the so-called truth, there's a population, there's a theoretical population that is like sort of like the truth. So the theoretical population that got this patient-specific plating, you know, there is a truth that none of us know, right? But we are sampling, right? So if you did this on the entire 6 billion people on earth, that is like the true population. But of course, you're only doing it on 1,000 people, right? 500 of each. So you're going to sample this and you hope that that sample of 500 of treated and 500 conventional are going to be a good enough sort of example of this right now the idea is depending on what what you see and when you calculate your p-value it's going to come out as a number right so if it's a very small number by convention that happens to be less than 0.05 then what you're saying is that you know if you ran this experiment like numerous times 
the chances of you seeing this particular relationship between those two means is whatever that p-value is, right? So if your p is 0.01, right, then you have to say to yourself, okay, well, if I ran this study 500 and 500 numerous times, many, many, many times, I would see, you know, for every 100 times I ran this study, I would actually see this result, this difference, you know, only one out of 100 times, right? So you say to yourself, okay, so arbitrarily, like all of science typically says, okay, well, that is like more rare than 5% of the time. That's what like the scientific establishment, I think technically Fisher of Fisher test fame, he was on a sort of like came up with this sort of convention and everyone just followed it, right? So by convention, we say now that if, if this, you know, if this sort of, if this outcome happens less than 5% of the time, 4%, 3%, 2%, 1%, 0.01% .01 of the time, that is statistically significant to us, right? And so that is how you have to think about it. I mean, in, in easier ways, it's like a, a coin toss, right? So heads and tails. If you toss a coin like 20 times, you know, you should get half heads and half tails. But the truth of the matter is you may not, right? Every once in a while, you may get more heads and more tails, right? And so there's a chance that you can get like 16 heads and four tails, 17 heads and four tails, right? But you know, those become more and more rare events, right? So if you have a perfectly weighted coin and you're actually actively flipping it the right way, you still have a, there's a very, 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 very small chance that like you'll get 19 heads and one tail, but it still exists, but it's so rare, which is like, you know, it happens to me at 0.001% of the time that if you see that, more likely than not, based on our standards, you know, that it probably is those, like the coin, you know, your coin toss is somehow different. It's not just like a fair coin mm -hmm. toss. Right. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And speaking okay. about like what, what I was just saying, kind of on p-values and sensitivity specificity, is a basic or comprehensive understanding of statistics important to surgeons who read research articles? Yeah. So I think what's really important, you know, the p the p-value question you asked me is actually really important. I think you don't have to know how how the p-value was derived, right? Because that that requires statistics. Like even for some of this. Some of the really complicated stuff we do in our lab, like, I, you know, we ask the, the biostatistician to do whatever appropriate statistical test is necessary. But at the end of the day, he gives us a p-value for those results, right? And I think, you know, especially for us in surgery where treatment is like, is really important, right? And understanding what the p-value means is really important. So when someone says, yeah, you know, it, it was almost significant because it was like 0.06. It's like, that doesn't make any sense because it, it either was or it's not, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you have, you set this arbitrary, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, you set this arbitrary threshold. Yeah. If you are above 0.05, it's I'm not. sorry, it's not, it's not a trend. It's not almost, it's yeah. just not, <laughs> you know? And so I think an appreciation for basic statistics, you know, things like sensitivity, specificity, so you can appraise literature, but also understanding what the basics of statistical significance are, are important. And I tell our residents that because, you know, for example, if you're saying that, let's say you have a, a disease condition, you're treating with a pill, right? And so let's, let's say amyloblastomas, here's a cool topic that people like have are bantering around a little bit. So amyloblastomas are traditionally, you know, treated with surgery, right? But there's a little bit of literature out there where people have been treating, you know, amyloblastomas, you know, with medications, right? So you hear about some of these amyloblastomas have mutations in them, right? So in these uh, BRAF mutations that the people have tried giving medications for. So 
you know, so a research question might say, okay, you know, in conventional types of mioblastomas of the manable, you know, your research hypothesis is that giving this medication will, you know, result in, you know, in a, in a cure while not giving it, like does not, does not have a cure, right? Now, a very clean result, if you explain the res, a very clean, easy result is like, let's say you have 50 patients, let's say you have 100 patients with mioblastomas, you know, 50 get the medication and 50 don't, right? If 50 who get the, get the medication get a 100% cure and the ones who don't, none of them, like none of them like are cured, that is like the easy result because the means are so far apart, yeah. like, right? That is like, that's very easy to see. Now, the problem is what happens if, you know, the medications in the medication group, like 48 of the people got better, you know, and in the, in the non-medicated group, like 49, didn't, like when they're, when the means are really close and especially there's a lot of noise, it gets harder and harder to discern if that's a true like difference or not. Right. And so the P value, you might not have the so-called P of, of, you know, of that, of that output anymore that you were looking for. Right. So I always tell residents that like, at least for treatment and stuff, you know, really far apart means and really tight error bars typically means that result will have a very, very nice, small P value results. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that's good to know. And then obviously we're getting into this more later on when we actually dive into the articles that we're going to talk about, but what is the proper way for a resident to read an article or perform a critical appraisal? I have to credit Kamal Busaidi in our, in our, so he's been running the journal club for our uh, program. I think since I was an intern, I guess since 2003, so he's running for a very long time. And so, you know, number one, all of our residents sort of get the basics, like the basics that we've been talking about, what P is, sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, how to set up these tables. But also, you know, a long time ago, he, he started coming up with these critical appraisal sheets. And so I think it's, it's in the, he's, he's, he's British, but it's, it's like the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine or Evidence-Based Dentistry. But anyways, it's the Center for Evidence-Based something. It's based out of the UK. And they actually have like an entire set of critical appraisal sheets for every single kind of study, like whether it's like a treatment study, a screening study, a prognosis. And our residents actually can like follow these sheets. And it's, it's yeah, so it's really nice. So it actually this is like, you know, how valid is this? You know, like is, you know, if you're doing a you know, treatment study, you know, like is, is this an answerable question? Is this clinically relevant, you know, to practice, you know, and then, you know, the results, like how were the results reported? Was there any bias here? Like how was the study designed? You know, that's really nice. It's really, it's really nice. So if you're, if your listeners like look that up, I think it's like the center for evidence-based maybe reviews, but anyways, if you look it up, it, it's a UK site and it, that way it's, it's standardized, you know? And so it's not like some people like feel like, you know, oh, I think it should be reviewed this way or that way. It's like, it's a template, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's, that's what we give all of our residents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, so the point is, if after they use this template a billion times and they start kind of getting it, it starts like, you know, kind of going into their brain. So by the time they graduate, they have a good, better sense. It's second nature to them now. Yeah. Right. Is it the Center for Reviews and Dissemination? It's like Center. For, it's like Center for Evidence Based. And then there's like one more letter for that. But if you if you put in like Center Evidence Based and just put in like Medicine. Critical, yeah, maybe. C -E yeah. CEBM. Yeah, yeah. And you just put in like their critical appraisal forms like. You know, we've been using those for a long time. And speaking of critical appraisal, are there any biases in research that we should be aware of or look out for? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, clearly, yeah. I mean, bias is all over the place. And, and of course, you know, we try to minimize bias. Right? But I mean, you know, if you think of treatment, I mean, bias can happen at all parts. Right. When you're when you're planning a trial, right, when you're in the trial or even like when you're doing the analysis. Right. And so. 
the trial design right off the bat, you can sort of, we all know, I mean, you know, case studies are obviously the lowest, 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 you know, kind of evidence while like, you know, probably meta-analysis from like multiple randomized controlled trials are probably like the best, right? So like right off the, right off the bat, based on a study design, you know, you already know, you know, like if there's sort of inherent biases into those things or not. But even, you know, I, I think all practitioners need to understand that that bias is permeates all of research. And the idea is that, you know, you can never eliminate something completely, but the more sort of mechanisms that an investigator puts into and transparently reports in their, you know, in their paper, the better, because then you can like have more confidence in what they're telling you. Yeah, and actually, I did find it because I, I think this is a great resource. It's the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. It is a UK complicated site. So ignore what I said before, but we always put show notes for the articles and stuff that we talk about. So we'll put a link to this website, and it does have PDF sheets for every type of critical approach. Yeah. So that's, that's a huge thing. Huge, and I think yeah. also you would agree not only as a new resident, but even uh, program directors or people in academia, they can say use this. Yeah. And what I like about what you said is it's standardized, so everyone can kind of compare what their thoughts were versus. As you said, most of the journal clubs that we go to, it's just kind of like, yeah, what, do what, do think? Think? what do you think? Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And so, we're all having beers, like you know, I'm, I'm, you're just like, well, yeah, I don't know, and then, you know, <laughs> never goes home. <laughs> My next question for you is, what is the greatest research project you've ever seen, and why is it CT Read? What? <laughs> <laughs> Why isn't it? <laughs> Why well, yeah, that's right. Was it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, Wendell, I obviously, you know, like credit to you for like doing such an amazing job. And and you know, actually, I, if I remember, I, Dr. Wong has actually incorporated that. I think that's mandatory for all of our residents now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, the you, minute they you, step through, they have to do CT read before they even start on service with us. Actually. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's nice. It's obviously, I put that question in jest because we've talked about it before. But UT Houston, in particular, so. The, the goal was obviously to, to expand the amount of people doing this, but we really kind of hope that program directors in particular would mandate it and make it, you know, as you said, before you start the residency, you have to do this course online and it'll make you a better junior resident, et cetera, et cetera. It's beneficial to them. And what's nice is we have had certain programs. I just had someone from a New York program reach out literally last week. And he said it's mandatory for all their new interns to do it as well. So that was really great. I really appreciated that. And then, yeah, Mark Wong has always made his, his residents do it. Ironically, the, own, the the program that I'm at, U of T, I'm not the program director, obviously, I'm just part-time, but I attempted to make it mandatory. It didn't go over that well, unfortunately. <laughs> was it because you didn't give it for free? Is that what, were you charging too much for it, Wendell? Is that no, what it's was? free. It's free. It's like, you, you know it's free. Yeah, it's 100% free. True. No, yeah, it's yeah. Still, a, still a work in progress with the current program director. But yeah, no, no. Uh, I really appreciate that. I always say so that in jest. But one of the things we chatted about when I was talking about research and learning more about is you yeah. brought up two organizations, the ADEA and the yeah. IADR. And these were organizations I hadn't heard of, but yeah. through talking to you, I looked it up. They're really, really great stuff. So can you educate our listeners? What are these two organizations and what do they do? What do they try and accomplish? What are the meetings like? Things like that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'll, I'll preface and, and, and say that I, I'm biased toward IDR. Not that I not that I have anything against ADEA. I, I just, I don't do much educational research. So ADEA is American Dental Education Association, right? And so our, our actually our dental school is really big into dental education and research in dental education, you know, better ways to educate, you know, obviously, which is super important because we're all working dental schools, you know, it's like ways to, you know, better ways to be educating our students. And so the vast majority of people, of the faculty at the dental school I'm at actually go to the ADEA meeting, the ADEA meeting, because it's dental education and research and everything around that. For me personally, 
I don't do dental education research. So I do like more like basic science research and whatnot. And so because of that, I tend to go, I mean, I'm involved with, I don't tend to go, I, I do go to IADR meetings. So IADR is the you know, International Association for Dental Research. And there are many sort of constituent countries and regions. So the one that's I guess the most relevant for us is the so-called, what is now AADOCR, American Association of Dental and Oral and Craniofacial Research, which used to be AADR. But essentially, IADR is the international arm that sort of oversees all the different countries. And there's like an IADR conference every year. And then there's a, an American one every year as well. So for example, you know, next year, I think the IADR is in Colombia, but the AADR meetings in Portland. So, you know, I'll definitely be going to Portland and, you know, I, I'm, I'm heavily involved in the Oscar IADR. Oscar and I might look into the Colombia yeah. one. Yeah, I, mean, that's not, that's not pretty, I saw I just, Oscar. I just, Oscar gave the, I just gave him the wink. I'm like, so are we going to Colombia or what? Yeah, we're yeah, yeah. yeah no, sure be great. I mean, if I can go, I'd love to go. I mean, you know, so, but essentially, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess very, very soon, it's probably any time now I'll, I'll be uh, after each IADR meeting, I'll, all the officers of a particular group move up sort of like a one notch. So you start off, if you're in the OMS group, I started off as VP, then you become president-elect, then you become president. So last year I was president-elect. So in the next month or so, I guess Congrats. it'll be official. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I mean, you know what though? I'll be, I have to credit uh, Anli. So Anli is the chair of oral surgery at Penn and credit to her. She sort of has been trying to revive the IDR OMS group for quite a while now. You know, it was, it was, According to her, you know, it, it was there were a lot. There was a lot of activity, and then it just kind of dropped off. People just weren't as interested for a while. So she tried to revive it, and now, you know, I'm trying to get as many sort of you know young, ambitious, you know, fun colleagues who are interested in, in talking about research and doing research to come to these ADR meetings and get involved with our group. So, for example, in Portland next month, you know, next year we're gonna have multiple symposias, and we're gonna try to get both OHSU and HNSA, you know, wow. groups involved and. Try to get, you know, just like a critical mass yeah. of just sort of interested, you know, people so we can grow the group. No, that's yeah. great. Yeah, um, it's it's really neat. No, and so I think that was really useful for a lot of people, especially for a lot of residents who are starting off. And like in our program at U of T, you have to do a mandatory master's, right? So yes. this would be things that, that if we would have learned right from the beginning, even that critical appraisal, having those templates, I think that would be really useful. So really thank you for that. Are there any shout outs you'd like to give on the podcast while we have you here? I mean, gosh, there's so many, I, you know, I guess I have to look at the past, the present and the future, right? So obviously past shout outs are all the people who really helped, you know, in the academic sphere. Dr. Wong has been absolutely critical to everything I've done. And if I had, if I had to say from a true sort of mentor and mentee relationship, he's really looked out for me from the very, very beginning. And I, I can't say enough about what he has done. And, and maybe just a, as a quick little aside, for everyone who's listening out there, I guess, who has, who's in a mentor-mentee relationship, you know, good mentors, they're always looking out for you and actively promoting you, right? So the best mentors, you know, I mean, yes, as a mentee, you have to approach your mentor and keep in contact with them. But, you know, when you have a good mentor, they're constantly trying to help you say, hey, you know, not only what's going on, but hey, you know, like this, this board position just opened up. Would wow. you like to do that? Or hey, you know, you like, grow. exactly. You know, they're, they're always looking out for you and actively promoting you and, and whatnot. So I, I feel like, you know, from a mentorship standpoint, obviously, Dr. Wong was like huge for me. My PIs, you know, back when I did my, P, you know, my PhD, <laughs> Dr. Miko's like, we still, we still have lunch every now and then. And, you know, he's been very good to me as a mentor as well. And Dave Mooney obviously is incredible. I'd say in terms of the present, 
you know, shout outs. I love, I love where I work. So, you know, working at UT Houston has been amazing because we have a very good job culture. So it's a lot of fun to go to work and, you know, enjoy the camaraderie we all have as, as yeah. fellow surgeons. That's and nice. Then, That's really nice. Yeah. But I say the future, the, 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 I guess the last shout out really is I'm starting to learn this now as someone who runs a lab, I have students now, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had to say that not only is it my job to educate them, but they actually educate me too all the time, right? Because they go out and find two now technologies and teach me about them because they say, hey, you know, there's this new stuff that we don't do, but I really want to do it in my project. So we sit down and learn about it and they'll incorporate it. So they're constantly awesome. teaching me things. So, you know, I, I love having my PhD students in residence too. It's, it's been really great. I think that's what's nice about working with residents and we talk about all the time is they keep you on, they keep you on your toes. You know, they ask you questions or they read things they want to ask you about your experience or what you do. You have to be really up to date. You have to, you have to you know what you're talking about. You can't be complacent, but I think the biggest thing is you have to know when to say, I'm not sure. I, 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 kind of what you said, let's sit down together. Let's learn about this together. I'm not familiar with this procedure, this technology. I think the, the, the catch some of us run into is when you're the more experienced surgeon, when you're the more experienced resident, you're a junior or something, sometimes you're tempted to just make sure you tell them the answer or come across like, or, you know, give the answer them an because, answer. Yeah. or give them an answer because you're ahead of them. But sometimes the correct answer is, yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. Let's look into it more. Let's figure this out. And then you can learn it with them. And I find what happens is usually when it comes to a surgical technique or procedure, you'll pick it up faster than them. You'll see the flaws. Or you'll be able to do it faster than them just because you have more background experience. But if you if you just pretend that you knew what they were talking about, you might give them the wrong information. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I love about like being in that academic sphere with the residents all the time, because you're right. I mean, not only do they keep in your toes, but I've become very comfortable, like you say, with just like sometimes not knowing. I mean, sometimes no one knows the answer, right? So we'll say, I'll say, you know what, you might have to look up PubMed because maybe no one knows the answer and like there's a super rare condition. Like, what do we do with it? I don't know, because it's there's only like two documented cases in the literature. Oh, well, let's just like see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, that, that was really great. Now we're going to jump into our last segment that we wanted you to stick around for, for sure. Uh, Journal Club, obviously. You know, each month we pick an article from JMS or IGMS or, or some or, you know article that really kind of speaks to it. This month, we actually had a few articles we wanted to talk to. And we actually wanted, for the first time ever in the history of the podcast, we actually wanted to bring on another guest to talk about his research and talk about his articles. No spoilers, but it's, I mean, it's about to be true. So we'll be right back for our final segment, which is Journal Club. All right, so welcome to our Journal Club segment. We have something really, really special for everyone. This is the first time we've ever done anything. Oscar, I spoke to you last- Is it special though? Oh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Fine, let me me reword that. We have a unique- a unique different. feature yeah, something, something different. Yeah. and now something different so we talked about how on one of our episodes we mentioned a journal club on an article about you know sarpy and expansion and how one of the authors rasmussen reached out to us and said i wrote this article you guys appraise it this is what i was going for thanks for your review and, and this is what it's about we loved it and what's funny is last episode we were talking about emerange and emerange simon was like our big topic and we talked about it as a resident reminder journal club all that kind of stuff and Mo, Mohammed Al-Rabani, who we've talked about a lot on the show. He's name dropped quite a bit. Name drop. And, and I would say as far as amount of name drops to like amount of effort put into our lives and our podcast and like things giving back to us. Very low ratio. Yeah, like we, we mentioned him a lot. Hasn't really done anything for no. us ever. You know what? Especially not. OK, not on a podcast level. On a personal level, 
She yeah. was, we went through residency. And so like, I love Mo, but on a podcast, pretty useless. Yeah, but no that. one cares about your sob stories about how Mo would save you when you were falling asleep on the page. Yeah, would go I'd up, be okay? like, Mo, just answer this for me. Because <laughs> Mo so we, also did a PhD. So we started together, but I ended before him. Oh, <laughs> so you kind of ordered yeah, him around exactly. for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we've talked about Mo a lot, and Mo actually reached out because now, now we talked about this. Now he's a loyal listener because his name gets mentioned on every episode, so he has to listen to what we say. And he mm-hmm. said, "You know, here's my feedback on the position paper, specifically operative therapy. The article doesn't discuss the benefits of surgical therapy, and they recommend resection, which I'm pretty sure might be certain contributions, not others." And he said that secondly, next month there is an evidence-based article supporting treating hemorrhage with surgery as a first line of treatment. Shamelessly, so you actually usually know. Sh- How does yeah, he know? Yeah, you know, remember the shameless plug kind of yeah. thing. I will say there's an article in the June edition that's that discusses a specific topic. So once again, we're thinking, okay, is he trying to manipulate us into picking this article? What's he trying to say? And I said, listen, we know Mo. We talked about Mo a lot. We are going to talk about a couple of his articles because this guy's a big deal. He's publishing all the time. It looks like. Yeah. Why just talk about him behind his back? You know, we're, we don't like. I mean, we do like to do that, but why? You know, it's a little bit Give much. A Let's bring him. Let's give him a chance. So we wanted Simon to be on the show because we want to get Simon's expertise on the articles and what he thinks. But we want to give Mo a chance to defend himself. So ladies and gentlemen, for the first time ever, we actually have two guests on at the same time. And we'd like to welcome the featured author to our Journal Club segment. So please join me in welcoming Mohammed Al-Ravani. Mo, how is it going? Very good. Thank you for having me. No problem. So let's so jump we, into... We have two PhDs on right now. <laughs> Yo, Oscar, we're the dumbest people oh, on the call. Let's be real. Gosh, like... <laughs> Should we get off right now? <laughs> well, everything Simon was talking about, about you know, trying to find that guy that wants to do OMFS PhD. I, I mean, laughing. Simon, Mo was that guy. Yeah, he like, did OMFS PhD at UFT. He went through a similar route that you were talking about. All the things that you're talking about that, you're, that we're learning I'm from like, you. Mo is your guy. Yeah, Mo is your <laughs> guy. Maybe, you know, maybe yeah. Mo could do like a postdoc when he's done in Tampa. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> They're going to have their own Zoom conversation once me and Wendell leave here. Right. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We're going to be the dumbest people for sure. Yeah. But Mo, for, for those that don't know, I mean, we've obviously chatted about you and what you're doing a little bit, but you know, U of T grad. And now tell the listeners what you're up to right now and, and kind of what's going on. So right now I'm actually in my last week of fellowship here in Tampa doing a fellowship with craniofacial surgery. Nice. And then the plan is to stick around here for a little bit and continue working at the same program. That means they liked you enough to keep you on. That's good. That is a good sign. If you stay where you did your fellowship, that is a pretty good sign. They obviously really like you. And I guess you like the weather. That's true. I was hoping to sneak by with just doing a year before they realized that I can't really operate. But <laughs> here I am. So you wanted to pull a Wendell then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into these articles, Mo. The first one we're going to talk about is obviously the one that you mentioned in your message to us. So it's called Surgical Therapy in Patients with Medication-Related Osteonecrosis of the Jaw is Associated with Disease Resolution and Improved Quality of Life a prospective cohort study. So whenever we analyze an article, assignment, obviously this isn't, you know, strict scientific method, what we're about to say, but we always do a pre-screening. And our pre-screening is we look at the authors, we look at the bottom, you know, where are they? What are they doing? Are they oral surgeons? Are they dentists in India? Are they, you know, researchers from Brazil? You know, are they prosthetists? What are they doing? So when we looked at this pre-screening, we saw a lot of familiar names. Obviously we saw Mo. Oscar saw some of his former staff, his former head of his program. Dr. Blanis. Yeah, there's a lot of good names there. Some names we're not as familiar with, but you know, a lot of different OMFS people. So for us, it would have passed our our pre-screening study. And the thing that would have stood out to me was, whoa, prospective 
prospective study. Like, when do we ever get anything that's not a retrospective study? So that was a big deal to me. But Mo, we wanted to give you a chance. What was the purpose of this article? Maybe give us a summary. What were you trying to investigate? And give give us a little bit of background on this uh, on this kind of study and what you were doing. So the background to this study was this was actually the culmination of my PhD. It was prospective because I had you know, I was able to design this study so that it kind of ran in the background. And as Oscar probably remembers over the years, I've bugged him and the other residents a lot with filling out forms, making sure they were on top of not missing any patients that came in. It was it was a bit of an administrative hassle, especially because essentially I was the administrator, but we were able to conduct this prospective study over four years. And so really the purpose of this study was to build on some of the previous work that, that we had worked on looking at the effects of surgical therapy versus non-surgical therapy on disease resolution patients with MRAJ. And what made this particular study unique, other than the fact that it was prospective, but also in a previous study, we had created and validated a questionnaire to look at quality of life in patients with MRAJ. And so this was the first study that we were able to actually use that questionnaire to see changes in quality of life with surgical therapy when compared to non-surgical therapy. Awesome. Yeah. So when I was reading it, you kind of talked about the purpose already. You talked about disease resolution and quality of life. Those were the outcome measures you were looking at. There's a prospective study at two centers, so that's great. And one thing you talked about is when you get into the results, it was 60 subjects afterwards, after the inclusion exclusion criteria. And you looked at kind of what was the chance of having disease resolution and how did that affect the quality of life? So give us a summary of what your results, what did you find, and, and was it what you expected to find? Yeah, so... As you mentioned, we had 60 patients. So because this was an observational study, not a randomized control trial, we left it up to the surgeons to decide whether they were going to treat the patient surgically or non-surgically. And because we had like 10 surgeons included in the study, we had a variety of different thought processes to how to treat this disease. And so on one hand, Some were very aggressive surgically and would treat absolutely everything surgically from stage one onwards. And then others were very conservative and really would only treat patients surgically if their hands are forced. And so when patients were treated non-surgically, for the vast, vast majority of patients included in my study, these were patients who were either treated with topical antimicrobials, i.e. chlorhexidine, or systemic antimicrobials when relevant. For surgical therapy, this ranged from superficial to deep debridements to sequestrectomies and then resections if relevant. And so the results showed that of the patients that, so the primary analysis, which was looking at a disease resolution in surgical therapy when compared to non-surgical therapy, of the patients who received surgical therapy, they were significantly more likely to result in disease resolution when compared to patients who were treated non-surgically. And so this was very consistent among, we'd written a previous study that was a retrospective cohort, which again showed similar results. And I had done a systematic review a number of years ago, which again, kind of gave an idea that that this may be the direction that we're going in. Similar results were also found with improvement in quality of life. So we found that patients who were treated surgically had improved, significantly improved quality of life when compared to patients who were treated non-surgically. And the interesting thing about this study because the, the two centers were both located in Toronto, and Toronto, of course, catches a very, very large number of, it's a, it's a very large population, so it gets a lot of referrals of, of patients with MRANGE from all around the community. We actually had a lot of patients with MRANGE who had osteoporosis. And this is unique to, this I found unique to this particular study when compared to a lot of the other studies that I'd read in the, in the literature where the primary focus is patients who were treated for cancer. And... 
So I think it was uh, more than 75% of the patients included in uh, our study were treated for uh, osteoporosis. And we showed, again, as I mentioned, significantly improved results with surgical therapy, regardless of stage of disease. That's great. So Simon, as a, a researcher yourself, as someone that, you know, this is way about, more pressure than usual. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. What did what was your appraisal when you read this article? And obviously Mo's here, but you can be honest. I mean, he's a big boy, he can handle it. So what did you think when you read through this article? What are your kind of takeaways? What would be your questions? What was your overall impression of what you were reading? Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, kudos to Mo for uh, for running a very difficult study. You know, I, I think just as a just a sort of as a preamble, you know, I, when I do things in a lab, everything is a is a randomized controlled trial, right? Animals. Right. So you, yeah. you always set up your experiments exactly how you need to do it with no bias. The challenge for what Mo did here, which is an incredible amount of work, is that like, you know, in these prospective studies, you have like 10 different people with all different philosophies. Right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think kudos to Mo for just like the biostatistical back end to try to sort of reduce confounding factors must have just been like <laughs> a lot of work, right? <laughs> you know, this made intuitive sense to me. You know, it, it was interesting though, because one thing that, I, that I, I noticed when I look at table one is that there's actually like a lot of people in the non-op group who are stage three, you know? And mm -hmm. so it, it's interesting because maybe just where I am, maybe we're a little more aggressive, but no one, at least in our department, I think would leave stage three to sort of non-op treatment. So it's interesting how based on where this study was performed, you have this sort of like this interesting sort of methodology, I guess, where, you know, stage three, 55% of your non-op yeah. group, stage two, 15%, mm -hmm. like the basically the vast majority of non-op people, you know, were pretty bad staged emerange, yeah. you know, and so- Which is counterintuitive. Right, but interestingly, it, that makes, then the result sort of like makes sense, right? Because like so, those people really should have gotten, I mean, that's my bias. They should have had some sort of like debridement or something, right? So the fact that the, the debridement group did better, like, well, that makes sense because I think the non-op people were like getting undertreated, you know? So that was sort of just like my gut feeling right off the bat. This is a great study. I mean, obviously based within the, the limitations of what you had to do. I think you did a, an, an excellent job and this is definitely, it makes sense. And I think, but most importantly, and I'm not even gonna pretend to understand like all sort of the statistical things you did on the back end to reduce your confounding factors with the bivariate analysis. But it seems to me whether, uh, I wasn't sure if, if you're like the stats master or you had someone who, who did it, but no, I mean, kudos it's, it's to you him. guys. <laughs> yeah. He's the stats man. Yeah. because. That's what you have to do, right? I mean, Mo is- Right, is, Mo, you did the stats, right? You're the stats guy. I did the stats, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is amazing, right? I mean, kudos to you for basically, right, having to do that. Because if he, if he hadn't done that, these results would be sort of less valid, right? I and mean, he's doing everything he can to minimize, like, the limitations in the study design. Mm -hmm. I know? second awesome. what Simon says. Yeah. <laughs> and, and point very well taken because, and, and as an aside, I'm trying to gauge how- detailed I talk about stats based on how Oscar's <laughs> eyes glaze over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's what I know when like, to stop. Like, is he starting? <laughs> so you're right. That's, that's the difficulty. And that's always going to be the biggest bias whenever I, whenever someone conducts a cohort study, regardless of whether it's retrospective or prospective. And ideally, the next step would be to do a randomized control trial. I wasn't sure that we were ready yet to commit to a randomized control trial, considering the the potential. You know, considering that 
you know, you can argue that there wasn't enough data to support surgical therapy. Perhaps it may be considered too aggressive. And so this just gave the surgeons their freedom. And so, you know, that just made the stats a little bit harder, but I did try as much as possible to control for some of these confounders. Yeah, no, it was really, really nice. And I think it's high praise coming from Simon that he thought it was a, a well-done study. I did want to mention the acknowledgement section. You said this investigation was supported by the research grant awards from the CAOMS Foundation for Continuing Education. So Simon, you had spoken about before a couple of the big people that do grants. You talked about the Osseo Science Foundation. You talked about the OMS Foundation. Did want to mention the AO Foundation, obviously personally biased because they supported my research, but they also have a young, you know, young surgeon, new surgeon resident grant, which as we said, is always easier to apply for. And as Mo has experience here, and I have experience as well, the CEO of the Canadian Association of Oral Facial Surgeons has also a continuing education research grant. And they're really generous with residents. Oh, like if you put to, if, if you're not a bonehead and you put together like a decent idea, they'll give you some money. Like, I don't know, much, they'll give you something. They funded my project. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really great that you acknowledge them. And I think they do a, a lot of good stuff. So. That's round one. Let's get into round two now, because as I said, most a big we, deal. We've got to start the show again today. Here we go. Yeah, I know. He's, he's just publishing multiple things. Now, I will say rookie move by Mo. And he's not a rookie, but this is a rookie move. When you're going to publish, you don't publish two articles in the same journal, Mo. It's Do you know rookie... what my justification was? What so was your justification? My justification was, how do I get the attention of teeth and titanium <laughs> to get onto this podcast. And really, my goal was to try to get these papers published both in the same in the same edition. So we had to pick before one. Before Dr. Kamnitty comes on. That was my goal, but I, I failed. Uh, <laughs> you know that was smart. You were smart about it, yeah. That, that's pretty good. Well, I guess it worked. I mean, we've been talking all this episode about how I just keep getting manipulated by people, but, and Mo's doing it. You know what? Like, it's you working. own this month. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's move to your next the next article. So this is called Reconstruction of Large Defects Using Extended Temporomandibular Joint Patient Matched Prostheses. So once again, a pre-screening, we see some names that we're familiar with. You know, we got Mo, we got Marco Caminiti, who we've actually had on the podcast already. Dave Sutka, former staff of Oscar, a colleague of mine in Mount Sinai. William is the previous UFD fellow. Previous fellow that Oscar, yeah. I guess, worked with. Yeah. I love looking at the bottom and, you know, yeah, it talks about previous fellow, but I always just focus on one thing when it comes to these Marco Kamini, Dave Sika publications. I just want to see the name of the center because it keeps changing. It keeps being impressive. And now it's the <laughs> Mount Sinai Hospital Center for Excellence in Advanced TMJ Surgery. Hey, you work so, there. Well, so this is what I'm going to say. I work at Mount Sinai. I'm a staff at Mount Sinai. I haven't done a total joint amount, so I've done an orthosynthesis. So am I part of that crew now? You are. That's TMJ. My associate. That's You're in the joint. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, in the joint. <laughs> I'm in the joint. I'm part of the, I'm part of the center. All right, Mo. So give us a little bit of background on this article. What was this about? What were you trying to do? And what was your uh, research topic question that you were trying to address? So this article, this was a beautiful, simple simple paper. We wanted to just publish the results of patients who received what are called extended total joint replacement prostheses. And there have been articles in the past that have been published about this particular topic. And so to summarize, an extended TM joint uh, prosthesis is a prosthesis that extends past the anatomic, the normal anatomic boundaries of what you'd expect a prosthesis to uh, extend to. So your regular sized fossa component and your regular and your regular sized mandibular ramus component. So either if your fossa component extends beyond those anatomic boundaries. So for example, if it extends to or past the articular eminence, if it reconstructs part of the uh, temporal bone, if your ramus component then extends to the body, those would be considered extended total joint uh, prostheses. And to my knowledge, 
having done this literature review, I think this was the biggest case series of patients who received this. And really the goal of this study was to tell the, the OMS public that these work and these are safe to use. And I think we were able to demonstrate that to some extent. The patients were followed, I think, somewhere between two and a half years, if my memory serves me well, until over 10 years. There were no prosthesis failures. Now, mind you, again, this was a population of 17 patients with 24 joints. So I would expect that rates of infection are probably going to be similar to, to the general population of patients who receive total joints, although, again, that data is not yet available. But we showed that we were able to maintain MIO in patients who had pain for whatever reason, we were able to show that on average pain improved. And then the, the general side effects that you'd expect from patients who get total joint replacements were pretty consistent with what we'd expect with a regular total joint replacement. Well, one thing I wanted to ask Simon right off the bat is, you know, Mo for his secondary outcomes, you know, they're talking about pain, quality of life. A lot of times people use it as a secondary outcome. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to pain, a lot of people, including this article, use this visual analog scale from zero to 10. And it, it seems to be the thing that people gravitate towards. It's, it's almost the one that's universally used in every article. And what I would ask Simon is, is this a validated, you know, scale? And do you think it's the best we can do as far as a pain measure? Is there something better we can do? Or is this kind of what we're stuck with for now? I'll have to say I'm not, I'm definitely not a pain expert. So while I think we're all <laughs> familiar with VAS, I'm, I'm not even going to, you know, pretend. try and pretend that I know what's better than visual analog scales. So I'll just leave it at that. I mean, if there are, if there are better ways to assess. Now, to be fair also, I think one thing that we are looking at more now as a field are patient-centered outcomes and not just objective measures. Because like, you know, VAS is one thing, right? But how does it affect your quality of life, right? And so I think, the fact that Mo also has been, you know, including like QOL type things in his research, I think is, is really important. So maybe- Well, it's huge, as you say, because they could have a great MIO. Right. But their face is paralyzed, they can't exactly. eat in chronic pain. So, <laughs> yeah, like, so, so, so while BAS is important, yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> how it affects the human being is also maybe something that we all need to also consider. Mo, did you find that when you were doing your secondary outcomes, like looking at VS, look at these other, you know, facial numbness scores and things like that, was there a lot of options for you to choose from? Or are you kind of stuck and tunneled into, I have to use VS because this is a pain questionnaire? Well, part of the challenge with this particular study was its retrospective. So we had to use whatever data was available. And at least with these particular patients, you know, Dr. Sutka's standard was to just give them all a visual analog scale. That was what we used. I had yeah. used a visual analog scale as well for the other, the first study that we discussed. And really that was just for simplicity. There's no easier way to just give a patient, you know, some, a scale, yeah, yeah. a scale and just have them give you a number essentially. From, themselves. Yeah, exactly. It's just quick and easy and dirty. Quality of life is, as Simon mentioned, very, very important, but can be a little bit difficult to collect, especially if it's obviously if it's retrospective. So one thing I would mention with this article, Mo, when we look at case one, so case one is a very large ameloblastoma. You know, it's the entire ramus going towards the body, huge resection. This is a case that slam dunk at McGill would be a fibula, be a fibula flap, and then the fibula would become a neocondyle. You'd have a recon play, but you wouldn't have this ETGR as you've been discussing. Whereas now here, you've actually done an ETGR. You've done the resection, reconstructed the fossa, the condyle, the ramus, the body, and then you've done an iliac crest bone graft. And, then, and this, this happened to have like a nerve graft at the same time, but putting apart the nerve graft for now, this is an example of all of a sudden you're taking a fibula flap for benign pathology and changing it into a custom prosthesis that, yes, may be more 
I mean, you can't really get into the expenses because there's OR time, flap, non-flap, things like that. But listen, you're saving a donor site. You're saving a fibula. Instead, you're going to a non-vascularized graft, so a hip graft. I would say lower comorbidities. So how do people differentiate now? Can I just do an ETGR for everything? Or is there a place for the free flaps? Like, where, where do you make that differentiation now? Or where people reading this article, how are they supposed to know which one to choose? I feel like I cannot answer that question when Simon is right in front of me. <laughs> these guys are too nervous like giving their opinions in front of oscar we're we're used to me and you we We, just say our opinions to each other we don't care what the other person we gotta separate them i'm gonna take simon into one zoom meeting yeah we're gonna break a breakout room we'll do the breakout yeah yeah so i i think your your points are well taken there are very clear advantages you know if i had to if you force my hand into giving you an answer i would say that case selection is going to be very important I think a fibula flap is probably going to be a lot more versatile. You know, when, when we're talking about soft tissue reconstruction, in addition to bony reconstruction, then a fibula flap would be obviously a lot more useful. If the quality of the soft tissue overlying where you're expecting your joint to go is poor, I think you're asking for trouble if you put in a joint. So those are probably going to be the most important considerations that, in my mind, I would be thinking about prior to deciding to go down the custom prosthesis route over a fibula. Okay. That seems to make sense to me. Simon, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's really fair, right? Because, uh, you know, I think the easy scientific answer is like, we know what we need. So I think if everyone's very clear eyed, like what this study represents, right? It's like, this is a small case series that's showing safety, right? We're not saying that one's better than that. I mean, clearly, what would be ideals if you're at a center or, or multi-center, right? Where you have people who are comfortable doing both and you can compare them, right? So that would be great. The other problem is that both these modalities of treatment are, are relatively, they're so sort of advanced that the vast majority of people have to go to specialized centers to get this, right? Like most people can't get this prost- this particular one done probably. And most people just can't walk into their local hospital and get a free flap done either, right? So part of it, I think a lot of it is predicated in like who you have there, right? But if you are in a place that can do both, you know, I think the data, you know, we do need to do studies to compare them, right? And see outcomes, regardless of like what the pluses or minuses, but just like outcomes, right? But for me, my gut feeling though, is that these ETJRs, they're man-made, which means that at some point they may need to be redone. I'm not saying like fibulas last forever, but another thing that we got to think about is that like, you know, if you're 40 years old, you're, you're probably not going to get away with just one in your lifetime. You might need a couple, right? With the frivola, eh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll last. <laughs> so just yep. something to think about as something interesting for the future. For sure. And as you said, you have to go to a specialized center. I mean, these patients came to the Center for Excellence in Temporomandibular Joint Reconstruction at the University of Toronto. Were which, you, were you which part I've, of? I'm inducted into officially <laughs> today is what I've realized. Yeah. Uh, before I joined this specialty center, though, I did want to look at some of these complication rates because, Mo, one thing that jumped out to me right away was all the patients experience some degree of V3 hyposthesia. It makes sense to me, you know, mm-hmm. large resections, you know. But it said post-operative evaluation of facial nerves showed 41% of patients showed some degree of permanent facial weakness Yeah, because the additional 24% was transient. So we're not just saying transient, you know, this is permanent. That seemed to be extremely high to me. Now, one thing I would like to comment is that a lot of these patients were revision cases or complex anatomy. So we all know with revision, everything's scarred down. 
the difference between a fresh joint and a revised joint is just like, it's like almost two different specialties. But can you comment on that complication? Because to me, it seemed extremely high. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a point that came up a number of times, both in our local discussions, as well as in the discussions with the reviewers when we were submitting the paper. So it seemed like the that particular complication rate was higher than that of regular total joint surgery because of, as you mentioned, the extent of the surgery, the fact that, look at case number two, for example, this lady's had 15 different surgeries before. It really just was with regards to the amount of surgery and amount of dissection that uh, the patients acquired that, that resulted in this uh, relatively high facial nerve weakness incidence. And in that 41%, were people already coming in? Were any of those already coming in with facial nerve weakness and you just included them? Or are these all new facial nerve weakness injuries? You know, to be completely honest with you, I'm not 100% sure about that. Okay. Yeah. Guys, can I ask you a question though? I mean, maybe just, it's interesting because if you look at the stats though, so if you look at table four, right? Number of previous mm -hmm. TMJ surgeries, there is actually, again, I guess here comes the, uh, the p-value thing <laughs> again, but, yeah. but if you look at it, unless I'm reading it wrong, there were no statistically significant effects on MIO pain or QOL from the number of previous TMJ surgeries. So it's, it's interesting, right? Because yeah, so when you look at like the verbiage in the paper, it says, yes, you know, obviously multiply operated patients, lots of scars. These are very difficult patients to treat and do the surgery on. But when you look at the statistics there, unless I'm, unless I'm reading it wrong, it seems that the number of previous TMJ surgeries does not affect those three measures, which is interesting. I'm going to answer this as politically correct as I can, <laughs> which is this was an, it's a, it's an N of 17 and it's a case series. And so if it were up to me, I probably wouldn't have done any stats on this because I, I don't think stats are very useful for an N of 17. I think this would have been just as good a paper if it was just a case series that we just presented and that was it. Mm -hmm. But if we wanted to publish in JOMS, then we had to throw in some stats. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. We, can, we can read between the lines <laughs> yep. on that one. For sure. <laughs> Moving on, man. <laughs> but, but that, so, but that yeah. point right there yeah. highlights what you know, Mo, we were talking to Simon before is, do all residents and, and clinicians reading these articles, do you have to have a basic understanding of stats? Yeah. And we reviewed some of the basics of stats earlier. And that's something, look, super simple that Simon pointed out just by reading this article. And it, it caused a little red flag in his mind. Yeah. And he obviously can have a high level discussion with you about it. But it, it instantly triggered something. And this is something he noticed. And if he didn't have that background in research, and even if someone didn't have a basic understanding, they might not, they might they, not see that. They'd so. gloss over it. They'd have no idea. Yeah. So I think that's that's really yeah. great. I'm Plus very I, biased I on that. I definitely, definitely <laughs> think that if you want to excel in your field, you have to know, you have to at least have a basic understanding of stats, a basic understanding of how to read the literature. I mean, for, for you to stay up to date with your literature and for you to be able to bring the field forward, bring your own practice forward, you have to be able to understand how to pick up a paper and read it and really yeah. understand what it's, what it's trying to tell you and not just take it at face value. So that's the second person that's told us that today. So <laughs> learn your stats, Wendell, please. <laughs> shots, shots fired. Hey, listen, you had Moda kind of carry that's you why. on his back exactly. all in residency. You know, he, you know he beat us up every Monday journal, journal club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, listen, I really enjoyed this. As someone who does total joint replacement surgery, I mean, it, it's nice to see, as Simon said, kind of a not a proof of concept, but proof of safety, maybe that you can extend, you can do these a little bit 
bigger cases with an ETGR and maybe save a donor site. We just have to think about long term how it's going to go and obviously the complication rate that's associated with it. One thing I did want to mention is you talked about the discussion about the immortal time bias. For readers that aren't familiar with that type of bias, what is the immortal time bias? What does that mean? So the immortal time bias came up because the patients who we followed were not all followed for the same amount of time. So some patients were followed for three years, some were, some were followed for 12 years. And so would you see difference, differences in outcomes the more you followed them? And, and really, there, were, there was a lot of difficulty with, with the stats that we ran here because, I mean, first and foremost, the fact that we had such a small number. And so it made, it made the stats more challenging. But then also, how do you control for that particular bias? Well, if it was a prospective study, it would be easy. You just continue seeing these patients again. But this was retrospective. So we couldn't necessarily control for that. And that brings attention to the readers that there may be a bias in the results. And it's nice because, every, you know, we talked about with Simon, the levels of evidence and, you know, low levels, high levels. And it's it's funny when you break it down like that. That's why I wanted to bring up this one example is you start to see, for example, with a retrospective study, you talked about the data limitations, how well they used a VS, so you're going to use a VS. Now we're talking about biases. Look at some of the biases that are inherent in the study before you even touch it. It's like you can't even control for this. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. So I think it kind of shows why there are levels of evidence and the things you can do with prospective, randomized, controlled, animal experiences, as Simon said. So, yeah, I think that's that's a good summary. and kind of shows the difference of, of what you can do with different levels of evidence and the biases that are involved. So, Mo, you got two more articles next month, or, you know, is he going to be off a hiatus no, no. now? He's going to take attempt. the summer off because he's done his fellowship. He wants to go on vacation. Exactly. He's not going to... Yeah, yeah. uh, what's the over-under on Mo's next publication, Oscar? I'm going to set it at 14 months. <laughs> it's under for sure. I have to under space sure. it enough that that I get the attention of TNT. If I... <laughs> <laughs> the, the only goal of publication, it's not about advancing the surgical specialty. It's Listen, Mo, 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 clearly, clearly you're not listening close enough to these episodes. What is the number one way to get your article on TNT? You ignore us. No, you, you put Oscar or I on the paper. And it's 100% guaranteed to be talked about. That's the best way to get on the show. We all know that. Well, the last article we want to talk about with Simon and Mo, stick around because you can give your thoughts. I know you haven't read this article, but you can talk about it kind of from a surface level. So, Simon, we, we, we talked about, you know, our, our article from Jameis this month was Classification and Management of Infraorbital Rim Fractures. This is by Paramiswaran et al. And uh, doing our little pre-screen, oral maxillofacial surgeons in India, Japan, and also one is the director of Orbit Oculoplasty and Reconstructive Anesthetic Services in India. So we have a bunch of different surgeons, and they're talking about coming up with a classification system for management of infraorbital rim fractures. So we chose this article, not so much to talk about the article in detail, but also because it's a great springboard for discussion. We love to pick articles that make you start talking about clinical topics. And in this, in this instance, it'd be management of facial trauma and a subset of facial trauma patients. You being in Houston, obviously, you must see a lot of trauma. And you even mentioned that on your Tuesday OR, you'll get a grab bag of pathology, trauma, things like that. So we, we kind of wanted to know what you think. So the purpose of this study was to identify different types of IOR fractures, so infraorbital rim fractures and determine if the presentation of clinical findings and treatment outcomes were dependent on the types of fractures. This is a retrospective cohort study. Patients were aged between 18 and 50. And the clinical findings studied included lid malposition or abnormal position of the lower eyelid in the vertical direction, globe malposition, so hypo or hyperglobus, 
Tethering of facial skin, so scarring of the infraorbital skin with adherence to the underlying bone or fragments. Diplopia and infraorbital nerve paresthesia. So I liked what their I liked their clinical findings that they were studying because I did find those are the ones we look yeah, at. Those are the valuable ones. Those are the valuable ones when you're looking at the patient, and you're doing your follow. So I did like that. They came up with a classification of fractures matched to a defect-based treatment. So you know they have this whole algorithm of type A, type B. I A1, think it, A2. Yeah. yeah, A1, A2, B1, B2. I think it's a little bit confusing, obviously, in a, in a you know audio format to describe what it says. But I can't really tell Oscar's thinking like, yeah, it's a classification system, but you kind of know what to treat based on what you see. So Oscar, talk us through kind of your management of this first, maybe how you were trained or what you would do now, as far as when you're, when you're evaluating the infraorbital rim, what are you looking at and how are you going to decide if you're going to open it and fixate it? So our big one was more like function and aesthetics. That, that was the big two things that we were looking at. One, like, are you looking for step deformity? Are you looking for glow position and ophthalmos? Anything that like, so the two big decision makers, which I, which is why I thought this might be a bit cumbersome with all the subs, like sub variants have A1, A2, B1, B1, D, B2, B2D to figure out what, what I think more for us was just, is there a functional problem or is there an aesthetic problem? And that was really going to determine, do we need to open this or do we not need to open this? That was really our clinical algorithm. And Mo, you can elaborate on that. Like we train at the same program. So do you have anything different to add to that? No, I, I completely agree with, with what you're saying. I, I haven't read the article myself, but it sounds like. What are you still doing here then? <laughs> <laughs> Should I open it quickly? Uh, Simon, how about you? How about you in Houston, Simon? How, do you, how would you handle um, these fractures? So I want to be very careful about what I say right now, just because, you know, this is like a public forum. So I want to be as respectful as possible to like for all yeah. kind of things. But I would say as a first off in general, I'm not a big fan of classification systems. I mean... If you have a classification system that helps you decide how you will treat something, okay. But uh, on its face, before I even dived into this, I was thinking to myself, you know, this is an extra sort of set of things I need to think about when you're already sort of capturing this data in whether it's like, you know, like, I don't, I don't think I can re recall in my time down here seeing like an isolated like just the rim and that yeah. was it. There's like a yeah. floor, there's a ZMC, there's, there's something, yeah. you know? So number one, I was thinking to myself like, really, like why, why, right? Like what, what is the purpose of, I don't want to say burdening, but what's the purpose of, of adding to, you know, more classifications, more things for surgeons to think about and what's the, going to be the benefit of that? That was sort of like my first question, right? Secondly, while, you know, so, you know, aside from the fact that this is, you know, retrospective, I mean, this is essentially a case series, right? They did not compare, you know, they didn't treat the same kind of fracture with different methods, ways. right? Yeah. Every fracture type had its own unique treatment. So there's no mm -hmm. way to really compare or say, should you treat one way or the other? Because depending on the fracture, it was only treated one That's way. Yeah. You know, and so just for me looking at this, I was saying to myself, I mean, you know, I, I like the diagrams and I like and I appreciate the work that was put into this. But I would say from from my daily workflow, I, I don't really see this particular information helping change my practice. Yeah, it's missing that validity. 
right. clinical validity that we were talking about earlier. Right. And, and I think you said that in a very polite way. <laughs> I you to, said what Oscar I'm was, you said what Oscar was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said what Oscar was thinking, but in a much nicer <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. But 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 yeah. it, it's a good lesson, which is that, as you said, this is a new classification system that we'd all have to memorize. And we all remember for ZMC classifications, for example, there are like 40 different classifications. <laughs> right. And all the time we're just thinking like, what is this doesn't matter. I know how to treat a ZMC. Right. And it's not based on these classifications. It's based on, as you said, function aesthetics. Right. And I think, you know, they even mentioned for the IOR fractures, it's an isolated aspect. It was rare. It was 3.9%. So it's very, very low. You'd have to see, you know, tons and tons of fractures to even see one of those. And even then, you're going to do functional aesthetics again. Right. You're, going to, you're going to assess the eye. You're going to assess the aesthetics. You're going to wait for swelling to go down and see if there's a residual defect. I think for me, when doing ZMCs, you know, you, you talk a lot about your approach is going to be you really want to look at the buttresses and you want to look at how many points of fixation you're going to do, where you're going to reduce. You know, Ellis always talks about one point fixation, two point fixation, which sequence you kind of do it in. And for us, it was really based on that. It was based on function aesthetics and then your algorithm. And that algorithm made sense because it's like, OK, maybe you only need to play one spot. Which suture should you look at that's going to determine if you're well reduced? Like These are very clinically applicable things that you're going to use. So I can kind of see what you're saying in that this is a classification system, and even though it might make sense. Are you actually going to use it for anything? And it's not really comparing treatment outcomes between the classification itself. Right. And I think that's why that that just even goes back to, you know, how we we talked about what's the best, what, what are good research topics to have or when you have residents, you know, I mean, clearly, I mean, kudos to these authors. This is a lot of work. I mean, they put a lot of work into this, right? But, you know, if, if it were me at the very beginning of a project advising a resident on this project, I would, and, and they had this idea, you know, I would have the discussion that we're having now with them and saying, before you embark on this, like, three or four year odyssey of collecting all this data and taking time and doing all these diagrams, you know, is it going to move the needle for the profession once you put it out there? You know, I think that's sort of a really important question to have. The funny thing is, I thought this article was great for residents to read, just to look at different kind of an algorithm and approach to how to fix these fractures, but just ignore the classification part. <laughs> don't don't worry about the classification system they came up with. Ignore that, but just look at actually how they treated the fractures based on the defects. And it actually kind of made a lot of sense. It's yeah. probably what, what you would do clinically. I did find it also funny how they talked about what the surgeons scored as far as the grading goes and what the patients scored as far as their feelings and how the patients in general were much more negative about the outcomes than the surgeons. Kind of, it's sad, but it gives you a little bit of perspective that even yeah. though you the case might great. go great for you yeah, and it might look great on a CT. Sometimes the patient doesn't think it went that well or is not satisfied with the result. So definitely people can check out this article. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes and you can you can read it. And, and as I said, I think there is some learning aspects of it. But as Simon said, it, it basically it didn't pass your pre-screening. But unfortunately for you, you, it wouldn't have passed your pre-screening from a mentorship and a, this becoming a project point of view rather than unfortunately now you're reading it as a final publication, putting years of effort into it. And now it's not passing your pre-screening. It's kind of it's wasted effort and wasted time, as you were saying. Great. Okay, that brings to an end our journal club segment. This was a really fun segment because we got to have not only two, two guests, guests at once, but two but PhD the author, guests. Two PhDs have the authors of the articles, you know, come on and defend himself and Mo. And Mo, you're brave. It's not easy to come on and defend no. your own articles. So <laughs> we, we appreciate it, you coming it, on. It's also a lot harder to come on when Simon is on. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, most papers are really good. I think the yeah, honestly. Yeah, right. To be, yeah. I mean, all jokes aside, what I really like about most papers is that they're very clear about what they are and what they're not, right? And I think every everyone in every profession needs to be very careful about overselling things. And like, and kudos to Mo for seeing exactly what they are. 
It's the opposite of him in his like personal life because in his personal life, all he does is you know talk about what he's not. <laughs> that brings an end to our segment. Listen, Simon, it was great, great having you as a guest. We really enjoyed chatting really with you. Thank you for taking you. time out of your busy schedule pleasure, really. to hang out with us. I really personally, I mean. This. I'm not sure about Oscar, but I would I would have you on for every single Journal Club forever. Oh, I, I love your analysis and I love your set takes. Guess. Like he should yeah, just, just always be in the background making everybody nervous for Journal Club. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do pre-recordings and you just like put a little snippet of yeah. me like every time. <laughs> and here's Simon. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, Simon. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the time. It was really nice meeting all you online. Thanks. And Mo, same to you. We knew you, but thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, Oscar, we're in our last segment, recommendations. And we actually thought we'd have Mo stick around because Mo, you mentioned that the recommendation section of the podcast is one of your favorite parts of the podcast. Oh, he definitely. Always, he, he always texts us, either me or you, something about recommendations after. So we might as well keep him on. It's well, the, the only reason thing, why I listen. I well, I was going to say, don't learn anything favorite, from your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> his, his favorite section of our educational oral surgery pro- podcast is when we talk about television. What TV exactly. shows can we watch? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how offensive people can be without even trying. Yeah. I guess, you know what? We'll, we'll actually let Mo, what is your recommendation? Yeah, we'll, get, we'll put the pressure on you first. Okay. My recommendation is Ted Lasso. And Ted Lasso is, it's, a, it's like, you know, it's something that my wife initially got me into. And mm-hmm. it's just like, it's just a good, feel good show that, you know, has very little conflict. You just watch it just to have fun. And it's just, and it's well-written. I really enjoyed people it. People talk so, about that show lately, actually. Yeah. So that'd be my recommendation. Okay. So also you've never seen it. I've never seen it, but I've only heard good things. Like one of my good friends, he's like, you have to watch Ted Lasso. And same thing. He's like, it's just an easy show to watch is what he said. So Ted Lasso has like rave reviews, like critically, I think fan-wise people Everyone that watches it really likes it. Like it's really become a, a not a viral thing, but like it's been a really popular a thing that people talk following. about a lot. Yeah, cult following. Yeah. Really has mass appeal as well. So yeah, I heard about it. And I think maybe either earlier this year or maybe last year, I started watching season one with my wife. She watched the first season and then I was like kind of catching up to her. And after three episodes, I quit. So Indeed. it's funny, I'm on the I'm on the <laughs> really? outside. I I can't stand that show. <laughs> and the reason is it's very simple, I think, is as you know, I'm obsessed with soccer and I watch soccer and I watch Premier League, I watch Champions League, I watch everything. And I keep watching the show only wanting to watch soccer. And it's it's like soccer is just the background of this like feel good romantic comedy type thing that I just don't want to watch. It's funny though, because the buddy that I'm telling you about is like super high competitive soccer played undergrad scholarship. Oh, wow. And and he's the one who said it's awesome. So but I'm fine. the minority here because as <laughs> yeah. I said, everyone loves it. I can't stand it, but everyone loves I it. So like I, I wouldn't give it a chance. I, well, yeah, I wouldn't take my anti-recommendation because I'm on the outside. Oscar, I feel like you're going to be on my side on this, but I'm interested to see which side you're going to yeah, land on. Yeah, I like am I, too. I might still be on your side, but I'm going to give it a chance. Yeah, you should give it a chance, especially because everyone really likes it. And it's, it's really well produced. My recommendation along the lines of, of really good production is I was going to talk about the Star Wars franchise and then talk about, obviously, you know, the more recent shows that have been coming out. So we have a lot of listeners that will be diehard Star Wars fans. We have a lot of listeners that aren't diehard, but, you know, they watch the Star Wars movies. So I grew up and I hadn't seen any of the Star Wars movies. Because back then, the you know, page. as I'm growing up, there's only episodes four, five, and six. Yeah. And everyone always raves about them as, you know, some of the best movies ever. And especially everyone would talk about episode five is, you know, if you look at top 100 lists across the board, 
episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, is always like in the top five movies of all time. Like it's always up mm-hmm. there. So very, very late in my life, I'd say in my 20s is when I was like, you know what? I need to start like, you know, watching these movies. So I watched episode four. I thought it was terrible. I watched episode five. I thought it was like super overrated. I watched episode six. thought it was boring. And everyone that loves Star Wars is like, oh, you're typical, you know, millennial. You hate this. You have to realize it was the time. And I get that at the time. You're going to offend a lot of people. Saying a that. lot of people. Yeah, we you just are, lost trust me. half our listeners. Oh my God. Trust me. Trust me people, people are going to listen to what you just did now and are going to start watching Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. That is probably true. That's that so true. true. And yeah. I haven't even gotten to the worst part yet. <laughs> so people are like, it's the time. I said, yes, listen, I get, I get that it was good for that oh, time, but I just don't I, tell me I, you I just, like the prequels. I just don't like it. No. Then the prequels started coming out. So then we got episode one and I'm like, oh, uh, you know, the special <laughs> effects are better. <laughs> oh uh, we got some lightsaber fights. I'm like, oh, I kind of. You're like, I can I kinda, get into this. I could get into this. I kind of liked episode one. Episode two, I was like, oh, I really liked episode two. This is really entertaining. And then episode three, episode three was kind of lame. I know people kind of hate the ending and stuff like that. But I was still like, oh, this is kind of nice. And the problem is people that had seen the originals four five and six, going back to the prequels now, they, they, they almost unilaterally all hate them. I will say when, you know, then the sequels, I guess you'd call them, came out. So seven, eight, nine, those are some of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And I think I think everyone tends to agree on that. But I do, I'm not a Star Wars fanatic, but I enjoy watching the Star Wars movies. I like watching them. They're usually entertaining. I I like the premise. I like the world they've created. So now these Disney Plus shows start coming out and it starts with The Mandalorian. And I was like, you know, am I really going to watch a TV show because it's Star Wars, I'm not really into it. And I'll let Oscar get into that because Oscar, you're saying that you've started that. And what are your thoughts on The Mandalorian? So that's so funny because we actually don't talk about our recommendations before we come on the podcast. We don't, no. Like, like at all. And then like right until right before, and then we kind of just talk quickly about it. And I'm like, no, that can't be yours because that's mine this week. And so I just got Disney Plus probably three weeks ago or two weeks ago. <laughs> you, you ran and out of then, things to watch. And then I, yeah, so I ran out of things to watch on Netflix and other, <laughs> all the other streaming channels. So I got Disney Plus and I'm watching them. And, and so to prep, before I even get into that, I haven't watched any Star Wars. Wow. Like if you wow. said you were like, didn't watch Star Wars growing up, I really haven't watched any Star Wars. I don't know, four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight. Like, I don't know anything <laughs> of that. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> South American people don't watch Star Wars. So I hadn't, I'm not a Star Wars junkie by any means, but everyone had told me, you don't watch The Mandalorian is good. Like on Disney Plus, there's a bunch of shows. So I gave it a shot. Wait, wait but and, you're watching The Mandalorian without watching the movies first? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't watched any of the movies. <laughs> but like, obviously everyone knows basic characters, right? Like, Everyone yeah. has seen a Yoda at some point in their life. Like, like a, it's like a little green thing. Well, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Any Star Wars fan is going to be cringing at oh, this thing. 100%. Like, but I will say, at, when I first started watching, like the first couple of episodes, I was like, okay, this is okay. I'll keep giving it a chance because I wasn't going to quit. And then after like the first three or four, I got like hooked. I really, nice. really like it. And so now I'm on season two. I'm almost done season two. And I feel like I'm just going to go back and start watching the movie. So my recommendation right now is The Mandalorian. Maybe mm-hmm. for people who are huge Star Wars junkies, they may not like it. I don't have any of that bias. So for me, it's been an entertaining show. Mo, have you seen the show? I have not. But now that have you watched all the Star Wars movies, I've seen all the Star Wars movies, but I have not seen the Disney Plus shows yet. But now that you it's can. on the official recommendations, it's definitely going on there. It has to go on the list. <laughs> it has to go on the list. Well, it's funny because this is the one where Oscar and I slam dunk agree. So as I said, I'm not a Star Wars fanatic, but I have seen all the movies. Started watching The Mandalorian. I love The Mandalorian. Yeah. I think it's phenomenal. I, I really, really like it. I want to sign up. I have spoken. Yeah. So I, I yeah. So <laughs> one of my friends who, who you met, Oscar, a Nasser, resident at, at McGill, he likes The Mandalorian too. <laughs> and he got 
both of us shirts that say, this is the way. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, this is the way. And then you got Makula shirt that says, I have spoken. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. That's so good. Makula says, I have spoken. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I watched all the Mandalorian. I love all of it. And uh, my recommendation was actually going to be Obi-Wan because I've, I've started, I'm watching Obi-Wan. There's ah. five episodes so far. There's one episode left. So uh, Oscar, I think, but for sure, that one, you, you cannot watch Obi-Wan unless you've seen all movies. And like, I have to see all movies. of them or after see four, five, six? Uh, you have, no, you have to watch four, five, six, one, two, three. You don't have to watch seven, eight, nine. If I were you, I would never watch seven, eight, nine. They're honestly a crime <laughs> against the franchise, in my opinion. Right. But you should watch. And I've always wondered, and maybe someone can answer this, because I don't know for you watching the movies, if you're supposed to watch four, five, six, one, two, three. Or if or, you should oh, now, watch, can I watch one, two, three, four, one, five, two, six. three, four, five, six. I actually don't know what's better. I think, but I think most people say watch four, five, six, okay. and then go back and watch one, two, I three. Agree. I think that's the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna do I think, it that I think it's I the way like it was intended. That's the natural way it should be done. And the good news is, if you do it that way, the movies will get better as you go along. <laughs> yeah, quality. Like imagine you look at the best quality, and then you end up with four, five, six. Yeah. Right? So I definitely recommend Mandalorian as well, and Obi Wan. And I definitely don't recommend Ted Lasso. But listen, it's good to have varying opinions. I got two new shows. I got Obi-Wan once I finished the movies and I got Ted Lasso. I'm going to watch The funniest one. thing is, you know, Oscar's got nine, or six or nine movies, whatever to watch. He's going to be done by like Tuesday. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Like 100%. It's going to be like, okay, so what else am I going to watch now? <laughs> That's what happens when you're not doing a fellowship or you don't have kids. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you got nothing but time on your hands. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings an end to our episode. Listen, Mo, it's great having you on. Thanks, Thanks for, for taking a busy awesome. time. I know, you're, I know you're busy with your fellowship and congrats. You're almost done. You're a week yeah, away. So a week left. congrats Thank on you. finishing Thank the fellowship you. and making it to the end. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. This was episode 22, our June episode. We'll see hopefully all of you next month in Iceland for our live episode of Teeth and Titanium. Yep. If you have any questions or you want to reach out to us or suggest another guest or have comments on our journal club or recommendations, maybe you're a big Ted Lesso fan, you can reach out to us at teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from all of you. Without further ado, we will see you next month in Reykjavik. Have, have a great spoken. night, everyone. <laughs> I've spoken. <laughs> Take care, guys. <laughs>